first thing I want to talk about, these fucking mask mandates are coming back, which sucks. And it called me, dude, I, it called me out of nowhere. Like, I thought I was good. I stopped packing masks. Here's my move with the masks. I like getting the really shitty paper cloth ones. I get about 50 of them. And what's good, you have to find the shittiest quality ones. Like, you got to go to a gas station that's selling the shitty quality version of the shitty quality mask. Because if you can get one of those paper ones that are shitty enough, what you end up, you can get a curvature where there's like air on the side and air on your nose. I got a big Jew nose. It protrudes out. It leaves me space. So I get air filters on both sides. People think you're wearing a mask. They leave you alone. It's great for, uh, it's great for flying. It's great for whatever. I don't have masks anymore. I was in Washington, DC. I was caught off guard. I went to eat at a Wawa late at night. We can get into Wawa sandwiches. That's not the point of the segment right now. I do have a lot to say about Wawa segments. I'm not going to make a harsh determination at this time, but I'm not totally impressed. I'm just going to say that I, you know, I've already gotten enough trouble with, uh, other comedic podcasters for hot takes over the last couple of weeks. So I'm not going to come in here and start off the show shitting on Wawa. I'm not going to do that. That would, I feel like that would be uh, a little bit too much career recklessness. You know, I, I can't be hard heel on every topic. I'm not going to be anti-vaccine and anti-Wawa. That's not what I was trying, trying to come in here and discuss. Holy shit. I've got ADD. I wanted to talk to you guys about um, that. You have to wear the mask again. I wasn't prepared for it. And here's a gripe I have on mask wearing, which is you go into a store and they say, excuse me, sir, do you have a mask? You go, no, but I'll buy one. And they go, here, we'll just give you one. And then the lady who's dealing with cash and she's dealing with everyone's shit at Wawa will reach into the thing, grab a mask, wipe her hands on it, hand it to you. And now you're supposed to put those germs. There's no way hands germs right on your face. Take it from a lifelong germaphobe. You know, that's why I'm so passionate about this. That's why I have a deep intuition of germs and the way they work. Cause I've spent my whole life afraid of germs. This is not new to me to be afraid of germs. I've always been afraid of germs. I've always been on the lookout. People are new to this. They're brand new to being like, man, there are germs out there. They're going to get me. I've been living this way for four or five years. I've been burning the end of bulls. I've been smoking joints through my, my pinky finger. I've been traveling with, uh, with, uh, hand sanitizer forever. And nobody talks about this dirty hands on a clean mask. You're now just like mainlining those germs right to your face. And then sometimes that happens to me where I actually get to location and realize I don't have the hand sanitizer and I got to put the mask on. And then I reach in and I know that my own hand germs are now on my face. Anyone else OCD about this? That it, it, to me, it's like now I'm both anxious about having to wear a mask and I'm freaking out about the fact that I got to get a hand sanitizer and sanitize my own face. And then I get nervous that I'm like just inhaling the fumes of the, by the way, do you ever feel dirtier as a human being than when you go to a hand sanitizer thing and you squeeze it and there's no sanitation in there and now you've touched the thing, right? You touch the thing and there's no sanitation. That's another moment where I bug out. All right, let's read a couple comments and I got some other, uh, can't wait for Cuomo's Deli to get that $5 footlong. I feel like he's going to be charging more for his footlongs unless he's doing it just to give back to the community or meet new women. Maybe he's going to have to meet new women. You know, he doesn't have that governor power anymore. And so he's going to have to open up the most incredible subway shops that women will come in and he'll have that subway shop power. He's going to need to figure out a new angle for how he can grope someone. Uh, I got a laugh from Elisa. Always nice to see a single female in the audience. That's a rare sighting. So welcome. And then last comic. And then we're a comment. We're going to get into the next comment. Uh, cause we got guests coming on in 15 minutes. I got to get into stuff. You people are distracting me. Uh, oh, and I can actually show these comments that you guys can see them as well, but gave it up to God said, you'll be fine. Stop OCD. I don't know what that means. All right. Next topic. But thank you for your comment, Mr. Derek. Uh, all right. Why are hotels anti-windows? Can someone explain this to me? 
you know, usually I find that I'm more productive on the road because I live in this shitty little room. You send me to a hotel. All of a sudden I got furniture. I got a desk to work on. They got a gym inside the hotel. And then like, you know, sometimes I like working poolside. I like pretending like I'm one of those people. I'll pretend like I got important business calls when some hot chick gets to the pool. And then motion creates emotion, creates emotion or motion fake it till you make it. All of a sudden you're faking like you're on an important business call to impress the hot chick who could care less because she's like, why is this guy pretending like he's on a business call? And then you actually do get a business call. It's like manifesting it. Something we're going to talk about with Robert in a little bit, Robert from Sheath. Anyways. I was staying in a hotel room. I showed up. I thought I was going to get some good work done. And I've noticed every hotel room, like this is why I don't go through those discount sites anymore. It's like, they've got good hotel rooms. And then they got one in the corner that like used to be a janitor's closet. And they looked at their profit lines. They're like, you know what? Fuck it. We can fit a bed in here. But then for some reason they walk into these rooms and you got like, you know, 40 windows. And their first thing is like, all right, if we're going to turn this into a hotel room, we got to seal all the windows. We can't have anybody getting fresh air in this thing. I got to tell you guys, I don't even like typically at home. I'm actually running the air conditioner at night just to make sure I don't have good audio quality. I set up a pretty good setup here and I just want to make sure that, you know, people don't think I'm too professional because I feel like that's part of the appeal of the run your mouth podcast is that it lacks professionalism and I don't want it to get too professional. So I ran the air conditioner. Normally I don't, but now all of a sudden you can't get fresh air. Anyone in the comments got anything on this as to why most hotel rooms can't give you a room where you can just open the window, especially if they're tiny. Someone's asking me if I've seen Kyle lately. Uh, no, but I am hoping to put together a winter tour with him out in uh, California. I believe you're referring to Kyle Ruff, hilarious comedian has done a couple uh, gigs with me from steamboat comedy, uh, fellow libertarian, fun to hang out with. And uh, hopefully we're going to get together a winter run of shows. And I'm also going to start working on end of year stuff. So you might uh, hang out on some of those. Pro tip from Heather Haying and Brett Weinstein, always press elevator buttons with your elbow. Now I got a hot take on this as well. I understand the elbow thing, but then you, if you start using your shirt, you never, you never wash your shirt. You never wash your elbow. So how does that work? You know what I mean? It's like, at least if you touch it with your hands, I'm really good about making sure to wash my hands again or use the hand sanitizer. But sometimes I find like, if you start shirt elbowing it or you start doing like the hand to like, now the shit's on your shirt and you're not, you're not changing your shirt. So I don't know that that's uh, a pro solution, but you know, those people are much smarter than I am. So maybe they know something that I don't. All right. Next thing I want to talk about DC. What a blast that was. Thank you for everyone to come out. I hope uh, me and Dave start lining up more live podcasts in, uh, 2022 because they're a blast to do. I know that we're going to be doing a live podcast out in Rochester. If you guys don't have tickets yet and you're in the upstate New York region, make sure to come out for that. And of course, Nashville's just around the corner. I mean, if you're live right now and you can get in your car and make that drive to Nashville to Andrew's farm, it's actually in a Bon Aqua, Tennessee or something. It's like 20 minutes or 30 minutes outside of Nashville. But dude, that's going to be a great show with uh, BK Chris. Go check that out. Um, all right. Next hot take I got Washington, D.C., uh, they might make important decisions over there, but they don't have good sandwiches. And now you might say, how can you evaluate that the entire town doesn't have good sandwiches? You're only there for two days. And I got a hot take for people. I can spend two hours in a city and find out whether or not the city respects sandwiches. That's not to say that you can't find a single good sandwich shop somewhere on the outskirts of town. But like you show up to Philadelphia and you know that it's a sandwich town. Every single place is bragging about how they're going to make the best hoagie for you. That's a town that respects sandwiches. They're competing about sandwiches. They don't give a shit about their health. And so right as you arrive into that town, they de declare to you, hey, we are a sandwich city. We've got good sandwiches for you. And I feel like even it's almost like New York City's a pizza town. New York City also has a lot of respect for sandwiches, especially bagel places. Here's the hack for good sandwiches. You want to find good sandwiches. It's bagel shops and pizza places. 
Those are making the best sandwiches. Now, your sandwich that you're getting a bagel place is coming on a bagel, which is excellent bread, and they put together good sandwiches. It's usually high quality. You go to a pizza place, you get a hoagie roll. They're making it fresh. I just became good friends with my local pizza place. It's not quite as good as my Astoria pizza place, but so, like, you know, I'm not cheating on Leo. Hopefully, uh, Retro 2 will open up soon. But off the bat, Washington, D.C., I had to trek to find a sandwich place. I finally found it. It was okay. The bread in DC is actually pretty good. The one sandwich shop I ate had a very good whole wheat bread, and then I got like a panini, and the actual like uh, the the actual like edges were real crusty. But I'm telling you, the inside of all these sandwiches were trash, and I could tell right off the bat that it was not a city that respected sandwiches. It was like super elegant restaurants for the wealthy and the elite. And then some of your chain bullshit that you see in every city, like your McDonald's and whatever. Um, I did eat some Wawa sandwiches. One of them was an absolute miss. It wrecked my stomach. It didn't even taste good. And then uh, I ended up eating, but I couldn't tell because I hadn't eaten all day as to what the quality was. But I actually, I, like at one in the morning, I literally inhaled like uh, um, a Philly steak sandwich. No cheese on there because I don't eat the cheese. I literally inhaled the thing and it was delicious. And that one didn't wreck my stomach. So results are inconclusive. And look at this, even more women in the feed. So let's see what they have to say. Uh, hello, everyone. Hi, Rob. That seems like a bot. Uh, Elisa commenting once again. Haha, so sorry we disappointed you. Great show on Sunday, though. Thank you. Oh, wants to know if I heard about Hunter's latest laptop. Um, where is that porn video? People, where can I see Hunter Biden porn that does not include kids in it? I'd like to see Hunter Biden porn. I've already looked at his penis. He's got an elegant cock. It's thick. It's long. It's everything you'd look for in a Biden penis or anyone's penis. Like, uh, And then it's also real trashy shit where you're like, dude, I guess I just need some cracking money and I could be fucking these bitches too. So like, it's really easy to get into the storyline. You know what I mean? The storyline of power and the CIA just standing. I mean, the, uh, whatever they use to protect these people outside your door, making sure you don't overdose. It's a fun lifestyle. I really do like what Hunter Biden is doing. I like his artwork. I like the fact that he went from crack to 500 grand on artwork. I like the way that he's met with world leaders and he gets these people to bribe him with even more money. I like everything he's doing. Uh, the latest laptop, laptop does seem like an interesting ordeal. Uh, and we're going to see where it goes. What is the best chain store sandwich? It's only in New York City, uh, but there's a chain of places in New York City called Lenwich, which is pretty excellent uh, for a chain. All right. Um, let's go with a couple more random topics that I had here, and then we're going to switch over to the other feed where we are going to uh, review the Olympics just based off of people's bodies. Uh, here's another hot take. I think I've talked about this before, but when there's road signs on the highway, I can't stand, like, they got to let you know, like, is the place, if you get off for gas, like, is the gas station right here? Is it like an easy on off? Or is it like I'm getting off and then I got 17 transfers on three different highways and I'm not going to ever find my way back to this thing. And Waze is going to have to reroute me through private roads and farmland uh, where I route through Nebraska to refine the highway. Just let me know. Like, if, just put on the sign. Like, if you're going to put on the sign that there's gas at this egg, like, it's got to be off the exit. If there's a single transfer, don't even tell me that there's gas there. Like, you, then tell me that there's gas in another town if I feel like visiting some other town and fucking bumblefuck. Just, can we get clearer highway signs for all the talk of infrastructure? You know, as a part of the infrastructure bill, can they redo highway signs? Maybe I can... Maybe I can show up in Washington and campaign for clearer highway signs that let you know exactly. Because sometimes, you know, not that this happens to me on this one, but like you, you have to like mentally uh, prepare your brain for how much time it will be till there's a bathroom type ordeal. And then if they lie to you and you think you're just getting it off an exit and then you find out you're transferring to another highway, 
you know, the whole thing's not going to work. All right, let's see what uh, Fanny has to say. Rob, it took me a few minutes to find you live here. Even if I was watching it on the TV, this cancel culture set algorithm sucks. I agree. I, you know, I'm not coming out as pro-cancer culture. That would be crazy talk. All right, uh, let's talk about a few more things. Then we'll get into it with the other people. A couple hot takes on uh, COVID that I will um, – first is – I was talking to a person, a medical healthcare professional. I don't know if that's true. I don't know. He works in like uh, science of uh, some ordeal. Uh, but he was saying that part of why you're seeing an uptick in COVID in states. And by the way, he was writing me a long email about uh, why the vaccines probably aren't that dangerous. And his essential take was that if you're in risk category, you should probably talk to your doctor. And if you're not, you know, he wouldn't recommend it even though he got it and he does feel that they're mostly safe, but he was forced by his employer. So basic takeaway before I misrepresent any of his point of views and pull a real CNN move and cherry pick the one piece of information that I thought was most interesting. Uh, and once again, this guy works in medical sciences and he said, uh, unhealthy, go talk to your doctor, probably a good idea. Healthy, not risk category, probably not the best idea. He personally got it. And he's personally looking at the data. He doesn't think that um, there's anything to suggest that it's overwhelmingly dangerous. He did, however, have one interesting um, take, which was that part of the reason why you're seeing such an uptick in unvaccinated areas is because those are in the South. And, you know, they're talking about how you're going to have more COVID here in the winter because we're inside. Well, the South is kind of the opposite where they spend more time in more time indoor in the summers because it's hot as hell. And so since they're indoors more, that's why you're seeing more virus and transferability. Is that 100% accurate? I don't know. I'm just giving you an interesting take. Uh, the other thing is go check out on Twitter. I posted this, but one of the things I've been trying to cover is where can we point to and say they are definitely lying to us? Because once we can establish that they are lying to us, so then they aren't trustworthy, and then that's it. I shouldn't have to trust them. So even if they're only lying to me about, like, let's say it was a good idea for, theoretically, let's just say it's a good idea for healthy 30-year-olds to get it. But they're lying about the healthy, uh, you know, 14 year olds or for pregnant women to get it. So if I can just establish that these people are absolutely lying to us, then to me, that's that's it. Why from there, then you would then have to prove me that for some reason, there's a reason to trust them. So that's one of the things amongst others that I'm working on. And we're going to be doing a long segment in the second half of the show all about uh, COVID misinformation. But one of the newest things I saw that just it, it seemed to me to be off and then some more intelligent people were breaking it down. I posted the article on Twitter so you guys can go find it there. Robbie the fire. Uh, but I saw an article posted today that was saying that they've now proved that it is safe for women uh, that are pregnant to get the vaccine. And they said that they did a study of 2,500 women, and I'm pulling this information off the top of my head, but I believe that what they said was that uh, the miscarriage rate amongst vaccinated women was 13.5%, which um, would compare accurately with general studies of the population of being between 11 and 16%. So what I initially flagged was right off the bat, wait, that's not like an apples to apples comparison, because here you're telling me in like a single number of 135 how do you have a range for the average? I just didn't understand how that would work. Someone pointed out that what they're actually saying is that it's like a 13% with a margin of error, something along, something along those lines. But what I just saw from a marketing perspective is let's just say that, um, uh, that within their study, right? Let's just say across the population, you had 13% is the general miscarriage rate, which I would think you could come to a single number. I think that there must be records of pre-COVID 
from the general population, or I would think the way that you normally run studies, I would thought it's like you give, uh, you got your placebo group and then your non-placebo group. So wouldn't you just have uh, 2,500 people that you give a placebo to, who I guess are planning to get pregnant? And then also like, who are the pregnant people that were put into the study? Is this self-reporting? And then some of the people that were kind of criticizing it as being bogus were saying that I, uh, I think at like six, I forget, I don't want to misrepresent anything. I'm trying to be as accurate as possible. Uh, but what's interesting on that one, please go check it out if you've got insight into why that article was totally fake. And I'll put it into the show notes, robsnewsroom at gmail.com. I believe that they are using this study as the proof to say that um, we've studied whether or not it is safe for pregnant women to take the COVID vaccine. This is not an unstudied thing. We've studied it and it is safe. And it seemed to me that that study, um, I don't know. I, I just didn't look like it was 100% solid. So you guys are smarter than me. I'm searching for the evidence just to prove that they're lying. Please go check that out either on my Twitter. I'm going to put it into the um, into the show notes. But just keep in mind that let's say that the general population was 13% and in vaccinated people, it was 13.5%. Uh, then they would be forced to report that although it's small, there's a 0.5% increase in miscarriages. Now, what's crazy about that is the miscarriages thing. I even had a joke about it because it seemed like it was the most out there ridiculous thing amongst the COVID hysteria. It seemed like it was the most unsubstantiated thing. Uh, and I made a joke about how I knew someone who had two. You can go check that out. Robbie the Fire. All right. We do need to switch to the other thing. Um, and I did have some other COVID information I wanted to talk about, but we'll do it on the second half of the show. Let's read a few more comments and then we're going to um, switch over. I'm a graduated physician, MD in Brazil with a good experience. Now I can't. Um, and now I can't speak about anything because I'm not practicing in Canada. I don't follow or support the, um, COVID atrocity authorization. Oh, Fanny, I think you hit me up on Instagram and, uh, I'm going to get back to you about doing your show and then we can talk about all the medical stuff. Uh, and then we'll take one more comment and then guys, I'm going to be exiting this feed, restarting a new broadcast with some guests in which we're going to be discussing the Olympics. Have you heard about Ivor, um, the ivory stuff? Yes, I took it. When I had COVID, I personally took it, um, I cannot tell you whether or not it was helpful um, in that, like, uh, I was three days into COVID when I started taking it. After I took it, I still uh, lost my sense of smell. So it didn't, like, it didn't seem to reduce all increases. Uh, so I personally did my research on that. Uh, there was reason to suggest that it was safe. And so I personally went for it. I spoke to a doctor who said that he's been treating a lot of people with it and there's nothing dangerous about it. I think it's very strange. And I've talked about it in earlier episodes as to why the FDA won't at least study it, considering that there are some uh, at least correlation evidence of it working, even though I know there was the Egyptian report that got thrown out. Uh, but some of the correlation evidence was areas that uh, seem to have a high prescription rate of that didn't seem to be having as much COVID. I don't know how scientific that was like more of just the... Um, marketing claim for the ivory. Uh, but for Mr. SL, who was asking the question, I personally took it. Uh, and I hope that the FDA does uh, more studies on it. And that, that's all I can really say about that. All right, we are going to switch the other feed. I will see you guys all in a minute. Before we get into this next fine segment, let's take a word from our sponsor, the Yo Family Brands, Yo Kratom and Yo Delta. It's for adults over the age of 21. Yo, Kratom, pretty great. Late at night, you take a little bit, you stay up, and uh, you feel like you're in the zone, or you can load up on it, $60 kilos. I mean, it's really up to you. Be careful with that Kratom consumption. I mean, a kilo, that's a lot of Kratom. And if Kratom's not your jam because it's out there, and it's, uh, you know, it's for shed people. So, like, let's say you're you're not a shed person, and you like something a little bit more smooth and mellow, well, then Yo Delta is the way to go. Yo Delta 
it's uh it's like weed it's gonna get you high comes in gummies comes in vape pens so uh you know if you're over the age of 21 you got to return to your college class or your office and you'll want to reek of weed there's no reason to so go to yodelta.com use promo code rym you're gonna get 20 maybe even 25 percent off it's a mystery. You can go there, type in a promo code, see what happens. So Yo Kratom, if you're into Kratom, that's the only place in the world you're going to get a $6 kilo. I give you the Yo Kratom challenge. You find another place where you can get a $60 kilo without having to go over to Indonesia yourself and then not factor in the cost of flights. Let's not go the whole thing. I got a great segment coming up. Yo Kratom, Yo Delta. Next segment, let's do it. And uh, I am unbelievably excited for this. Uh, we're about to get into everything COVID misinformation with the dude who claims to actually understand how data works and can unravel some of the nonsense of the story. Uh, so before we get started, why don't you uh, introduce yourself and let people know a little bit what you're actually like, I'm an idiot and I'm just talking out of my ass. You actually have a couple credentials. So why don't you let people know a little bit about what your background and why you're uh, trust trustworthy on the topic? Right, right. Uh, Hey guys, uh, my name's Steven. Um, I look young. I got a bachelor's in cell molecular biology uh, from San Diego State. Uh, absolutely loved it. Uh, contributed to bacteriophage therapy, published some papers there, uh, kicked it at Harvard Medical School, um, really saw behind the curtain, was quite disgusted at the arrogance and bureaucracy and really the lack of science there. Uh, came back out here to California, have been working for startups, um, making viruses for years, including various generations of lentivirus, um, IPSCs, doing motor neuron differentiation. Um, the list goes on. I eventually started my own company because I was sick of working in this kind of, you know, cog in the wheel, uh, Western blotting, tedious work for, you know, really no end. Um, and so I started my own company, Lisa Cryobanking. We actually store cells and do uh, consulting for experiments for other companies, particularly COVID uh, experiments with various envelope viruses. Okay, um, so when we talk about actual people that would have insight into yeah, going on, yeah, <laughs> COVID viruses, data information, science in general, uh, you're one of the rare individuals that would actually understand this data and what the hell is going on. Right. Let me just summarize. As far as my own company, I make COVID diagnostics, a loop-mediated isothermal amplification. This is a color-coded way of doing PCR at one single temperature instead of doing cycling. We can also talk about the PCR reaction and cycle thresholds later. I've also created a cheap at-home antigen test that you can actually use with milk and a prick of your blood to test for various antigens or excuse me, test for various antibodies you have against specific antigens. And this is all done in a dot blot format on a Western blot. So, um, yeah. All right. Excellent. So uh, why don't you get us kickstarted off the bat? I know that you put together some slides for us and you also have uh, some insights into, well, I, you know what, actually, let me just kind of build out what I'm trying to do over the next couple of weeks. And then hopefully with my end of year presentation, I, I can tell just by nature of me being able to see bullshit that they are lying to me about the COVID vaccine. I can tell that. And so I'm on a mission to do two things. First is I want to certifiably prove that I know that these people are lying. And lucky for me, as they start pushing the vaccine on pregnant women and on kids, I think there's going to be even more red flags about the fact that they're very clearly lying. And so I just want to prove, Hey, why are we trusting these people? Um, the other thing I'd like to take a look at, which is something you and I emailed about, is just if you're being an intelligent person and you're assessing personal risk, uh, what is riskier to you? 
Is it riskier to you to take the chance of you getting COVID or is it riskier to you to take the chance of getting a experimental vaccine? Uh, and I don't think anyone's quite having that conversation. And there's a lot of numbers to look at. There's the absolute risk reduction versus the relative risk reduction. There's uh, how big of an epidemic is this currently, which we don't really see, or at least I don't see the bigger picture numbers outside of Rand Paul saying, if you're under 50, uh, you know, the death rate is less than the flu, uh, which means if you're a healthy individual under 50, there's no reason. This is clearly just hysteria. Uh, to, to just go a little bit further than this, then I'll hand it back over to you. I know from my following of global warming, I can see they're looking for centralized control and it's not nearly the threat that they're trying to play it out as they're literally anti-economic growth as they want to control the economy. I understand the way misinformation works. I understand the way corporate interest works and the relationship with government. And I just see every element of this is reeking like the storyline I've seen uh, in the way wars are pitched. It just seems like the misinformation machine, the propaganda machine is working aligned with the corporate interest of these companies in a way that is not meant to benefit us. It's more meant to restrict our lives. Uh, and so I can't navigate everything here. I can't, I'm not a scientist. I failed stats every time I took it in college. I don't understand the way this information works. I can just tell it's being misrepresented. Uh, and so I turn it back over to you. So maybe you can actually fill us in on some of the real details here of how they're lying to us and how we should be better assessing our personal risk. Right. Well, I'll first tell you what I did. I merely went to the CDC website and pulled data from both 2015 and 2020 slash 2021. The reason I pulled from 2015, obviously, is pre-COVID and 2020 and 2021 is during COVID. So here, this first graph I want to present, this is just an age distribution of deaths from COVID-19, as well as the age distribution of deaths from all deaths in the year 2015, which is the red bar, and 2020, which is the blue bar. And what's important here is that this isn't your chances of getting COVID or dying from COVID or dying from anything but COVID. This is actually just if you died of COVID, what percent of the people that died of COVID are in these age brackets? And what this uh, data tells me is that there's very little significant difference between the, or there's that very little difference between the percent of COVID-19 deaths per age group and just the overall deaths per age group, not counting for specific diseases. So this was an immediate red flag to me. So if COVID was, for example, tearing through 15 to 24-year-olds at a rate higher than at all other age groups, we would actually see that reflected by the yellow bar being higher than both the red and the blue bar. And of course, we actually do see that in the population that's 65 years and older, which leads me to believe that as the older you get, the, uh, the more susceptible to COVID as evidenced by the, you know, the higher percentage of people. All right. Can I, can, I, can I pause you for a second? I just want to make sure I understand what I'm looking sure. at here. So we're doing a comparative study of essentially in the year 2015, how many people in each age group died. Right. to suggest whether or not in a new universe where COVID exists, is there a higher risk of me of me dying? And what is the risk? Like, I'm a 30-year-old, but what is the risk of death in every age group? So if we were existing in the worst pandemic in human history, right. you would think that your risk of death would be higher because there's a new, there's a new thing that didn't exist. It's like if all of a sudden right. cars were spontaneously combusting. Right. Let's just say... They built cars wrong, and all of a sudden in 2010, right. we found out the cars spontaneously combusted. 
So if cars spontaneously combusted at a high, a very high rate, then there's a new risk of death that didn't exist, let's just say, in 2020. So now the risk of death, if there's a really an epidemic of cars combusting and it's extremely dangerous and people are still getting in their cars, right. overall death rates for every individual would be higher because there's new risk on their plate. So, right. I, okay. Now, just I want to make sure I understand the, the graph. So yellow presents the risk of death in each group during COVID-19. So that's mm-hmm. this year. So, so the risk of death graph is actually later. This is That's, important, um, that's an important uh, distinction. This is actually the age distribution. So this is once you've already died, what's the percent that you're in these age groups? Okay. And this is, uh, and I'm looking at current for 2021 or I'm looking at 2015 here. Uh, so the red bar is 2015, the blue bar would be 2020, and the yellow bar is COVID uh, is just COVID deaths. Okay, now I might be learning right now that I'm colorblind, or you might be learning right now that you're colorblind. I see that middle bar as being orange. Is that red? Ooh, sorry. Okay, so going from left to right. Oh, I apologize, fam. Okay, going from left to right. Uh, this first bar is the percent of COVID-19 deaths per age group. So this tells me if 100 people died of COVID in 2020, there's going to be about 76 of them are going to be 65 years old. About 20 of them are going to be between here and so on and so forth. And so what this tells me is that in the year 2015, if we were just to look at 100 people that died, we would see, you know, about 74 people that died, uh, you know, in this age bracket. So this is just kind of setting the the stand for the distribution. And I'm going to uh, make an argument in the next slide about age uh, per disease. Okay. So this is just a distribution of death. Uh, I mean, it's funny how grim this is. Uh, (laughs) Essentially, if 100 people die, what we're saying is close to 80 of those people are going to be over the age of 65, uh, about 20, you know, or whatever. 15 of them are going to be between 45 and 64 we're just looking at a death distribution chart in a typical year of what percentage of people are in, e- in each age group. Right, right, exactly. And just to just to set set your basis of risk, let's say, you know. And so and so let's move on. So this next graph, um, I'll post this all, and we can definitely um, you know uh, get more into it later, or or I can do a breakout. But essentially, what this graph is showing is it's adding more diseases in the same uh, metric. So again, each of these bars going from left to right represents a different disease in a different age category. And the higher the bar, what that means is that per 100 people that died of that disease, um, the higher the bar means the more people belong to that age group. And the only point that I'm trying to make here is that similar to heart disease, cancer, uh, diabetes, and even the flu, uh, the distribution is very similar between, you know, just averaging between all deaths and then breaking that down per age group, as well as looking at individual diseases, including COVID. So essentially right here, um, what I'm looking at tells me that there's really no difference in the age distribution that COVID's killing than the flu, than diabetes, than heart disease. So um, if you want to make an argument that COVID is an exception in terms of these in terms of, you know, its age distribution or its risk profile that we'll go more into when we have total real numbers. Um, it's a, it's a hard argument to make. Okay. I'm just going to repeat this back to you to make sure I understood it, but I think I do. Right. The chart I'm looking at is basically a distribution of death for different diseases. Uh, and it kind of tracks, firstly, it tracks with your general death chart. And it also COVID-19 is basically no different than 
diabetes in terms of that diabetes, how many people over 65 diabetes kills versus how many people under uh, 25 people kill. Now, what's interesting about this, I'm noticing that the one thing that doesn't fall into the general disease chart is going to be accidental death, which makes sense that 25-year-olds are really stupid. They're more likely to get into a car accident, whereas a 65-year-old is more likely to sit at home. So that's that's actually the only thing on your list that's not quite diseases. Which makes perfect sense. Exactly. Right. Which is actually kind of funny too, right? Um, Right. But but um but but that actually kind of gave me a little bit hope more hope in the CDC right and we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but um, oh, you mean that the data is actually accurate because common sense would track with the accidental death um being higher and everything else everything else being lower for the kids for twenty five to forty four year olds. Right, right, and and it's also important here that I am combining um and and this is uh, clearly labeled, but again, just for your listeners, I'm combining um because we don't have all the data for 2020. So I actually pulled out the data from 2015, and again, I'll provide all the uh, Google Sheets calculations. So what you're looking at is the COVID data and the flu data from 2020, and the total deaths data. That's all the CDC has released, and so I'm grouping that data with the percentages that I got from 2015 which of course is the year before COVID. But it's in percentage terms, not real, not real number terms. All right, everyone but- watching live, let's give it a second to see if uh, Steven is, uh, all right, and you're back. So uh, oh. you, I think just if you were talking, start this chart from scratch because basically you froze right as we uh, concluded the last chart. Oh, wow. Okay, are we back? Yeah, yeah, we're back. Uh, it looks like you're coming through clear at the moment. So a uh, good place for that to happen as we're, we got a fresh page in front of us. Excellent. Uh, sorry about that, fam. Okay. No so worries. So moving on from the last chart that we just looked at, the age distribution of deaths in two different years and as well as COVID during one of those years, here we're actually adding more bars that are looking at the age distribution of specific diseases in the year 2015, along with um, – along with COVID in 2020, as well as total deaths in 2020. And so what this graph is telling me is that the COVID, uh, the COVID age distribution is very similar to heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and even the flu in terms of age distribution and uh, per age group. Okay. So essentially all that we're establishing thus far is that COVID is similar to other diseases that older people are going to die of it and younger people aren't. Correct. And um, something funny to point out here is actually if you look at the one bar that's kind of bucking the trend, it's the percent of accidental deaths per age group. And as you can see, for 15 to 24 year olds, they're absolutely killing it literally with the accidents. Sorry, we we froze once again, which is brutal Uh, to let you know where you were. You basically had started the sentence of uh, to tell you what's funny here. Okay. Um, to tell you what's funny here is uh, actually if you look at the uh, bars of accidental death, um, uh, do you see the light, the middle bar right here? Yes. Yeah. So the, uh, this bar actually bucks the trend. And it's funny enough that, as you can see, the 15 to 24-year-olds are absolutely killing it in the accidental deaths, which kind of makes sense if you're a 20-year-old, which kind of gives me a little bit more faith in this data. Are we frozen again? 
All right, we froze up again there, and this is really important stuff. I really don't want to miss anything. I'm sorry. No, no, it it, it could just as likely be on my end. Why don't we both uh, um, close out and do a computer restart, and I'll send you a fresh link, and we'll pick it up fresh from the slide, and hopefully, uh, you know, just hopefully we won't run into the same problem. Sometimes it's just a restart, but I really don't want to miss any of this information because it's critical. Right. Um, would it be possible for me to call in, but then still keep this screen right now? Because I think it might be my internet. So if I can call in and talk, would that be possible? Let me, uh, if you give me, actually, let me just check. Yeah. Thanks. And damn, man, um, I, I can, uh, I can figure out something too. And, um, if we have to redo it, we definitely can. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate, um, you know, how uh, you're picking up on it so quick too. And, and we're not even got to the good part, but yeah. Oh, now you got me juiced up. Like, no, we're yeah. getting this done tonight. I don't, I don't uh, care. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I knew, I knew we were going to be best friends, man. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, I'm so glad. Cause, cause that's kind of how my mind works, man. It's like, let's first look at the, is this something new? Right. And it didn't look like it. Yeah. All right. You know what? We seem to be okay right now. Let's continue. If we freeze again, uh, we will figure it out, but right now, you know, we seem to okay. be clicking. So let, let's, let's continue. All right. I'm just going to, I'm just going to power through. Um, I'll start with the accidental bar then. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm here. Okay, sweet. And so, um, so basically, uh, real quick, sorry guys, again, this is basically a age distribution, uh, represented by age group of specific diseases. So each bar here represents a specific disease. And what I got from this graph is that COVID-19 follows the same age distribution as heart disease, diabetes, cancer, flu. Um, and, uh, and this is uh, pretty important just because uh, if this was something new, you would, you would expect to see a, uh, something new in the data. And also on that note, as you can see, um, this one bar is actually bucking the trend. This is the bar of percent of accidental deaths per age group. So it actually makes sense that 20-year-olds down here are going to die more of accidents because they're crazy than their 65-year-old counterparts. Okay, on board. Excellent. All right. And so now um, we were talking about age distribution. So now I really want to get into the nitty-gritty. So if, if you're killed, what's the likelihood that you died from a specific disease per age group? And so this is basically looking at how many people died of COVID as a percent of the total deaths for that year. So starting over here on the left, uh, the bars each represent the age brackets going from one to four to all the way to 65 plus as labeled here. So here you can see a exponential increase in the percent of COVID-19 deaths per total deaths when you look at the age bracket as expected. But when you put it in the context of other deaths, um, look here, a percent accident deaths per total deaths in 2015. Almost for this orange bar is 15 to 24 years old, over 40% of the deaths in the 15 to 24 year old age bracket was from accidental deaths in 2015 versus roughly 3% of the deaths in 2020 came from COVID. Right. So in other words, we need to, if we really want to save kids, we got to teach them how to be less dumb. Right. <laughs> That, that's essentially what this graph would say is like, if we're really going to change all of humanity to try and prevent death. Right. And I think we can all agree that we would be, uh, we would prefer to prevent deaths in young people to old people. I think just, we would all agree. Like if you could save a 
25 year old versus 65 year old, we would focus on saving the 25 year olds. Um, not that we should have to choose between people, but I think most people go with that preference. So if we really want to deal with the death, uh, death problem in youth, we have to figure out how to make them less dumb. Uh, and we will save substantially more lives. Right. And, and it really the, the, the hard numbers are really shocking here because if you add these bars, which are just accidental deaths with these, which are just the, the percent of the other non-15 and LCOD stands for leading causes of death. So these are the 15 leading causes of death. And of course, if that doesn't break the top 15 for the age group, it falls off the list. Um, but these are the other ones. So when you combine these bars with these bars, you're talking a vast majority of the deaths are coming from, you know, uh, diseases that don't make up the top 15 killers and uh, accidents. So that's just something of interest. Okay. And then in the older population, uh, so when I, oh, I'm seeing percent diabetes, percent all other non, just, what does that mean? Non-15 LCOD, like that means non-illness, just like natural causes. Um, LCOD is leading causes of death. So this data only tracks the top 15 leading causes of death. So in every bracket, there's actually about anywhere from 10 to uh, about 28%. That's actually just non-diseases, but they're so sparse and sporadic that they actually don't uh, reach the top 15, if that makes sense. Okay. So just at, at, at a total eyeball, total eyeball, about you got double the amount of deaths from heart disease in the old population than you do COVID. Um, you've got about a 40% increase, uh, for cancer, uh, maybe 15 for all other. And then diabetes is about, is about maybe 5% less. So the idea being that it's not like, it's not, I guess COVID does not necessarily, well, it certainly does not drastically exceed other, other illnesses, even in the most at risk population. Right. Uh, right. And, and, and let's be real, like this is pretty shocking, right? But, but, you know, we're not even going to get into the, you know, how they calculated, uh, you know, these numbers and, and I'm, you've covered a lot on your show, which, which I've listened to, you know, about just, you know, you get in a car accident and you get COVID, you, you get marked, right? And then the other thing to keep in mind, which I, I, I think this is what you're building towards, but the COVID-19 deaths that I'm seeing is that someone that would have been accounted for in a different category within a short period of time. Precisely. And just to, just to put a, uh, uh, I, I don't know, an ornament on it. I don't know, but, um, but look down here. So this is the percent flu deaths per total deaths in 2015 before COVID. And you can see that there's a sizable amount of the 65 plus population so much. So it shows up on the graph fast forward to 2020 virtually there's no people over 65 dying of the flu compared to what they were five years ago. Just to give the two sides of that, visually you can see that there's a substantial drop in flu deaths, which means that there is an accounting problem here of us over-attributing COVID-19 deaths that are clearly belong to another category. However, just to give the inverse side of that, I I mean, it could be if we're stealing just visually that amount, like 20% of each deaths from each of these, then that's what constitutes the COVID-19 death chart. However, I, or at least or let me just state this differently. If you look yeah. currently at this COVID-19 je- death chart in the old population, you go, holy shit, that's a substantial risk more than the flu. If, however, you look at even just the amount of flu deaths that visually it would seem are now being attributed to be COVID-19 deaths, 
And then you could deduce that that must also exist for heart disease or other or these other issues. Then that might account for most of why that graph seems to be so much bigger than the flu. I do have, however, two questions for you just to make sure that we're all above board and accurate. Um, Comparing 2015 to 2020, are there any issues there in terms of, I mean, I guess we're looking at percentages here more than population. uh, And also you would consider that 2020 figures would be better than 2015 because there would be general health and scientific increases uh, in medicine. I would assume that over a four, a five-year period, uh, you know, maybe there would be enough improvements in medicines where maybe your cancer deaths, you know, would not be at at the same level. So just in your opinion, I I don't know enough about this field of study, but is a 2015 to 2020 comparison, like could could someone basically knock this as, Hey, this isn't fair because we're comparing 2015 to 2020 or is that pretty legitimate? I I would say, you know, that's definitely kind of like an academic argument, but I would just argue that within five years, you're really looking at, you know, three to five years to get a small molecule approved. Um, You can definitely get into small emergency use authorization trials with small molecules, which I've done before. So that's that's just to make that point and educate everyone. The, The point of emergency use authorization in the context of the company I used to work for is we used to have crackpot chemists. They used to make these crazy white powders. I would uh, solubilize them and treat cancer cells. And then if they killed cancer cells, we would put it through a process, and eventually we would treat people with that type of cancer, right? Well, it turns out if someone has that type of cancer and they're dying from it in the clinic and nothing works, then they can come to us and say, hey, let's use your experimental drug. I know you haven't tried it on pigs yet or dogs yet, maybe just on mice, but it's worth a shot. That's what an EUA is for. So it's really supposed to be only for if you're dying anyways, that your like your risk of a problem from this is basically nil. You might as well just go with this because you're dying anyways. And that's supposed to be the context for emergency authorizations. So the idea that a healthy 22 year old should take something off of the back of emergency authorization is a gross misrepresentation of uh, of of what emergency authorization is supposed to be. It's disgusting, man. And, and, and that's, what's even like terrible people's lives get changed because of this, right? Yes. It's a shot in the dark, but like, we're not like back alley, like crackpots, right? Like the companies that are billion dollar companies, like we're onto something, right? So sometimes our drugs work and they work for people that are really desperate, but we're not talking about desperate people. And that's part of the reason I wanted to make this PowerPoint, but yes, exactly. Right. All right. Um, I think that was all the questions I had. Um, oh, I guess what I, this would be hard to quantify, uh, but I'm still just going to say the questions because it is coming into my head. And th- this might be uh, speaking to kind of our broader view of risk. Yeah. I guess you could look at this, though. I, I, this is where it becomes really hard to evaluate. So COVID-19, let's just say theoretically, is significantly uh, more uh, contagious than the flu. Let's just say that. I don't know if that's true or not, but let's just say that to be true. So I would believe that a lot of old people might might pass sooner than they otherwise would have um, if they have other pre-existing conditions. But the flu, like, let's say the flu is highly more transmittable. I can only speak about my grandfather. He's 85. I remember a year ago he got he got a cold, like a simple cold, and we weren't sure if he was going to pull through that cold. It took like it was like four months where he was sick and he just wasn't kicking it. And then he pulled through. Oddly enough, he got COVID and he was good in two weeks. But whatever. <laughs> the yeah. point the point being, though, if you had some highly transmissible new cold 
and you take these people that got that are just generally in bad health that could kill them off. So I guess it does become kind of hard to evaluate, or maybe you do have the numbers to break this down of, so did we just cut this person's life short by two years? Are we talking about that we cut their life short by two months? Um, which maybe you you do have the breakdown of that, but I guess it becomes a little bit hard. And by the way, just to speak, I, I mean, I'm rambling, so I'll hand it back over to no, you. No, no, this is good. If we know that only the 65-year-olds are at risk, and it's because they have other conditions, then the simple conclusion is, well, then let's keep those people at home and leave the 25-year-olds alone because they're not at risk, which has obviously never been the approach here. It's been everybody's got to go through this because the 65-year-olds have to go through this, which doesn't doesn't even make sense. Uh, and I'm rambling, so I'll hand it back to you. <laughs> right. No. And and just to tack on a little bit to your, your ramble, it's almost better to expose people to the coronavirus that are healthy, right? Because then you create more, I know herd immunity is kind of a trigger word, but the more people that get asymptomatically exposed to something, you build immunity and you're good, right? That's the whole premise of having children play in the dirt, right? Because children don't really suffer from these diseases, right? So you let them kind of get exposed to stuff that maybe I wouldn't want to eat, right? So it's the same thing. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. And um, yeah, so yeah, it's great. But um, but yeah, so so um, so yeah, so I guess um, so moving on and I'll just be really quick here. Um, the orange or this uh, graph right here is just a blow up of the uh, the percent of COVID-19 deaths per total deaths in uh, from January 2020 to August 2021. And so this actually incorporates the Delta variant and the Alpha variant. And so um, as you can see, it's a little closer breakdown and there's just a nice curve as the age groups go up. And this pie graph over here is the COVID-19 deaths per age group. So this is of the people that died of COVID, what percentage this big chunk is 65 plus versus uh, the 45 to 64 and you just get smaller chunks, just a different way to visualize. Okay, I, I gotta. I just want to make sure I'm following. Chart on the left is if somebody died of a disease or someone died in this year, what did they die from? So over 65, about 12% of the deaths last year were because of COVID. Right. Okay. Right. Um, and so 15 to 24, what am I? So it's like 3% of deaths. That That kind of seems almost high to me. So- Am I reading that right? So three percent of the deaths last year for fifteen-year-olds was because of COVID. Well, so you got to think that not that many fifteen to twenty-four-year-olds are dying. So of the ones that did, this is the percent that died of COVID. But this isn't giving you real-world numbers. Does that make sense? Yeah. So in other words, just to state it differently, as a theoretical, if a hundred thousand fifteen-year-olds die in a year, so then we're looking at. Uh, 3000 total deaths, uh, because of COVID. Um, right. Okay. And then in terms of the chart on the right, it's just the percentage of COVID deaths per age group. So it's basically the death. It's just the death distribution, uh, showing essentially that 96 per 90, 97% of COVID deaths are all people over the age of 45. Right. Right. Totally right. Yep. That's all. That's all that is. And so here's something, because uh, we're talking about risk a lot, and uh, this is a log scale graph. And all that means is that this y-axis is instead of linear, it's on a log base 10. And But the numbers still mean what they mean. It just can be a little bit hard to differentiate it when they fall in between. So that's why I left the uh, graph down here. But uh, what this graph and how I calculated this graph was, 
I, I took 15 to 24 year olds as the uh, base case. And then from there, based on their percentage of uh, death per COVID deaths, I then could calculate what is the risk between these different uh, age groups uh, from dying from COVID. So essentially, if you get COVID, uh, what are your chances of dying from it? Or of the people that died of COVID, um, the, this is the uh, percentage breakdown translated into a risk assessment by the amount of times uh, more or less likely than a 15 to 24-year-old you are to die of COVID. Okay, simple enough. Just my, my risk compared to a 24-year-old of dying from COVID. Right, okay. for age group. And, and if you're over the age of 65, you're about 450 times more likely to die of COVID. That's it. Okay. And so these are just uh, links to the two references, and um, I'll link the Google Sheet later. And so uh, now I, I just want to take a step back and um, just because I'm really impressed, Robert, like, again, you and your listeners and your viewers, um, you think like scientists and you, you're very logical with your thoughts. You just need to be armed with the ammo to, to really call out the bullshit or at, least the, or at least know for sure that someone's full of bullshit. So this is just a really quick 30,000 view, especially when someone tells you that the, that the virus is mutating in unvaccinated people. And I'll, and I'll make this really quick and please ask any questions. So, and, and I've, seen, I've seen PhDs and medical doctors say just erroneous things, but um, uh, are you still with me? Yeah, yeah I'm still here. Oh, perfect. All right. So, so what is evolution? It's important. Evolution is two things. It's mutation and natural selection. You'll hear everyone and their mom talking about mutation in terms of COVID, right? And that's because viruses replicate the fastest of any biological ent entity. When you replicate, you mutate. So viruses mutate even within one cell uh, can give rise to many different variants and even different variants and little variations can be present in one person with an infection. So obviously mutating and getting different variants isn't enough to select for these prevalent stain, uh, strains, you know, the top five that we care about, particularly Delta now. And so what explains... Um, you know, what explains uh, the selection pressure that we now have the Delta variant? And so what I'm what I posit is that um, well, actually, first, I'll ask you, Rob, do you know what the difference between the Delta variant and the COVID alpha or the original COVID is? Oh, geez. No. Oh, hell yeah. Well, we're going to learn today. So this is really interesting and you're going to love this. It's called the Delta variant because the Delta variant has five amino acid substitutions in its spike protein. So this is the same spike protein that we're getting vaccinated against. And this is important. So the spike protein is about 1200 amino acids and we get the mRNA in a little viral-like particle basically injected into our muscles. There the mRNA goes inside cells and produces that original COVID alpha spike protein with the idea that our body will then create antibodies against that original COVID spike protein. Well, this, provides people that have not been involved with COVID before, but have gotten the vax with a high titer of very specific antibodies against that original COVID spike protein. And of course, now we're learning more and more about breakthrough infections in Delta. And as I mentioned, the difference between the Delta variant and the original COVID, the only difference is five amino acid changes on its spike protein, and this is important because even changing one amino acid is all you need to throw off antibodies to change their effectiveness 
or to change the antibodies to maybe do something else for the virus. So uh, just to, uh, I mean, build off of that and kind of put into simple terms, the mRNA vaccine is, and it, it doesn't take a lot of science to understand this. Right. Essentially, it's to combat one thing, and that's the original virus. And we know that viruses change. We know that. And so we're injecting something into people that we know that after a single mutation won't work because by design, it, it's not it's not giving you robust immunity. Maybe that's not the proper medical way of saying this, or it's not giving your body the ability to uh, boost Outlast the virus. Yeah, it's general defenses or learn how the thing works and then be able to beat it. It's giving you the tool to defend one very specific version of the virus. It's almost like... If I learned how to, uh, let's just, I, I mean, I'm just going to, this is fucking go. stupid just, talk. Yeah. Let's say there was a tiger in armor and it, the one place it didn't have armor was by its neck. And I'm playing this video game and I learn, okay, I got to stab it in the neck. Right. And then all of a sudden it comes back and now it's got a protective coating against the neck. Okay. So I had one tool to beat this thing and that one tool doesn't work. That's basically what the MRNA is. It's giving you one single tool which works against one single virus. And we, we know that the thing mutates. We understand that viruses mutate. So it's highly predictable that as there are mutations, um, this is that the, that the new, that like in other words, it's not going to work against the mutations because yeah. it's not designed to. It's yeah. not what can it I, is. Can I add a little bit more to that? Because yeah. like you totally get it, Rob, but, but like I don't think you get it, man. Because okay. let me explain. It gets, it's more insidious than what you think. Um, so there, there are various families of viruses and coronaviruses, which contributes to the common cold as well as SARS was a big deal some years ago. It's very well known that coronaviruses routinely change their spike protein and specifically the spike protein. And this is just because um, you can think of a virus as a uh, as like a, a, a basketball with goo on the outside and with nails sticking out of it. Right. And those nails are the spike protein that help the virus kind of find the cells it wants and to get inside them and infect. Right. And so it makes sense that if you wanted to vaccinate people and create a way to stop this first virus quickly, you would you would target those little nails on that gooey basketball. But like you just mentioned, and as all the literature points out, like everyone and their mom knows coronaviruses that are called coronaviruses because they have uh spike proteins that look like crowns. So crown, corona, coronaviruses. And so everyone knows that all a virus has to do is change that little outside spike or just a little part of it. And then the antibodies won't work. Right. Okay. And now just in, in terms of speaking, maybe to the more insidious nature of this. Um, so the companies who are selling this would know that this is not like advanced science or something that they couldn't see coming. Right. So just two part question there. Uh, first one is, could they have designed this in a way that it would be able to combat variants or does that technology not exist? That's very interesting. And so now we can compare and contrast with other vaccines. So routinely, depending on the virus, one would originally might uh, grow the virus that you want to vaccinate against in the lab and then actually use formaldehyde, the same chemical that you use on dead bodies to stiffen them. And that's because formaldehyde actually chemically links um, various uh, residues together. And doing so, it inactivates the virus. But the beauty of giving someone a, a, an inactive full virus, including maybe some of its genetic material in their body, 
is that your bit your immune Pac-Man cells come by, chew it up, and then you start making antibodies to all different parts of that whole virus that you got injected to. So, so now your immune system is armed with not just antibodies against the spike protein, but also what's called the N protein. It's a nucleocapsid protein that's inside the virus, or maybe even the capsid protein. So, yeah. Okay. And then just, uh, maybe this is a dumb question. Uh, and I've never been clear on exactly, uh, the relationship between shed rate and trans transmission. Uh, so I've heard at some points in time, they were trying to say the reason why this thing is so deadly is because people cannot know that they're sick and actually be infecting other people. And then I've heard if you're not coughing, you're not, you're not like, it, it's a function of shed rate. Why couldn't you have a, tra- a traditional vaccine here? Cause I've also heard that you might get less sick depending on how much of a viral load you're infected with. So why is a traditional vaccine not possible here to give someone, you know, a very low viral load or almost like a, uh, like a more sterile viral load so that they could actually like, I, I mean, obviously that can't be done because it seems so simple and they're not doing it. So why right. does that not work with coronaviruses? No, I mean, that's, um, that's a great point. I think previously, and I'm going to answer your question right now. I don't know the specifics, but I'll certainly be sure to look that up and, and communicate with you further. But in my opinion, in the past, what's happened with the, the, risk reward and even just the development and the trials for a vaccine against the common cold wasn't really there or worth it. And like I mentioned, coronavirus is actually, um, because if you imagine that basketball that's uh, gooey with the spike proteins, um, sometimes it's hard, even if you get antibodies against stuff that's inside the virus, for those antibodies to be particularly effective because they're targeting stuff inside the virus. And this, this really comes down to kind of a family virus by virus situation. But again, to answer your question, I don't know. And that's what really concerned me. And that was the first reason, man. The the second they jumped to mRNA technology, that perked my ears up. That's like, this is literally what I do in the lab to create viruses, right? The only difference is we're only giving the spike protein, right? Um, so so I'm actively trans, um, uh, transfecting in, um, well, uh, various DNA or RNA into cells in the lab. And I'm thinking there's no way they can use this for a vaccine when they're easier, you know, they're easier routes to take first. Okay. So uh, handing it back to you. So now that we've established that we know that there will be variants because uh, viruses do mutate, I think you had a second point on this side. Right. And um, well, just to go back, I think you might've missed your point that uh, I might, I just see that you might want to state the hypothesis. Oh, right. Yeah. And so just to summarize, so my hypothesis is that by pumping um, on uh, by pumping people with a vaccine specific for the original COVID spike protein, that nail on the outside of the basketball, it's selecting, it's putting the natural selection pressure as part of the viral evolution as described up here, that will then help select for the Delta variant. So I'm sure we will. Wait, right. but th- what's really scary about that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but if let's just say, for example, there actually was a mutation that was deadlier, right? Mm-hmm. And we gave people the ability to protect from the first one. So now they're more likely to get infected by the second correct. one. Now, what's wrong about that analysis, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, generally speaking, uh, mutations do not become deadlier. But I guess if we fuck with Mother Nature where we're changing the way that viruses per like basically uh, 
the way vir- the life cycle of the virus, if we're changing it because now we're like very specifically just protecting against one version, we're almost it's almost like the gym for the virus. We're forcing the thing yes. to mutate. Yeah. You are so exactly right. And 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 that's the only reason I started sorry I got a little technical with the amino acids and stuff, but that's the only reason I brought it up up here because that's such an important point. I hope you can keep driving in. Um, just it's just levels of insidiousness that you know mutations happen, right? It, I don't care what virus. If a virus is replicating, it's infectious. Uh, if you're shedding, it's mutating. Um, there, there's no if and or buts. You know, you only need one virus to replicate in one cell, and you already got mutations. So, so the these variants that we're seeing, it's not a function of mutations. Mutations happen all the time. They're a function of the natural selection pressure that we artificially are putting on this virus. Like you said, we're, we're sending the virus for a workout by saying, hey, look at all these vaccinated people that don't like that one original COVID spike. So so I dare you to come up with a new one. Okay, I'm on board. Yeah, yeah so it's really interesting. And, and, um, and again, uh, I don't wanna spend too much time. This slide is just kind of reemphasizing what we just talked about. Um, and this actually does explain the difference between the Delta variant and, and it's by no, it's not a coincidence that the Delta variant has the amino acid changes only in its spike protein. Besides that, it's the similar, right? So that's just really interesting, right? And, and so now just kind of the, the last part, um, I, I did want to get to this uh, just because I think it's relevant too, um, to kind of change gears because we're going to talk about the vaccine trials. And we're going to talk about kind of building on what you guys have talked about, the uh, absolute relative risk or absolute risk reduction versus relative risk reduction. Uh, Is that okay? Yeah, no, please. This is something that I haven't totally like I understand it, but it seems so crazy that like it's an argument I almost don't want to present to people because I feel like I must have this wrong Uh, because when you start equating the like personal boost that you might be getting from taking this, it basically does not exist. So I'll hand it back over to you and then I'll kind of put it into simple terms and maybe ask my questions of why I'm not a hundred percent on it. Uh, But I think that this is every time I've read an article about this, I was like, this must be not true conspiracy (laughs) talk because it just seems so like unbelievably flagrant in terms of like a marketing way of presenting how much help you would be getting from this. That's why you and your listeners are brilliant. And um, I'll just start with the conclusion here. That's because in the Moderna trial, for instance, they have a placebo group, right? Which is non-vax. And then they have the vaccinated group. Each group is roughly at 18,000 people, right? But the problem is that we're vaccinating like 180 million Americans, right? So, so for you to, to make a statistically significant argument, uh, and, and I'm not an expert at statistics, but in order to make a statistically significant argument, you have to then transfer what you found in that study from 18,000 people to 180 million, right? Which is a function of 10,000. So, okay. So, so, so the, the, so the reason that you're trying to extrapolate out from such a, such a low sample size and between that sample size, the amount of people that got COVID in within those groups, it makes, uh, your calculations of being sure very, uh, very weak. That makes sense. Well, I, I do actually have a question on that. So I would think in my mind, typically speaking, I would think science would establish, Hey, here's what we need for a sample size because percentages should always be the same. 
Right. So if if we can say, hey, a random sampling of 10,000 people is going to be a perfect random sampling, I would think if you're going to make an evaluation for whether or not something is actually safe and effective, you would have the perfect number of this is how many people I need to test it on. And that will translate directly proportionally into the general population with a very small degree of variance. Right. Like I would think that that would be the process that you would need to have. So speaking to that, let's say 10,000 is the number. So then theoretically, let's just say if one in 10,000 um, has an issue, let's just keep the math really simple, right? If one in 10,000 has, has an issue, so if 100,000 people ends up, uh, ends up being it, so then I can predictably say, well, 10 people are going to like, the numbers shouldn't have a lot of variation because it's supposed to be a perfect percentage. If, if, if your process right. works of right. sampling actually being representative of the population. Right. And that's true with the relative risk reduction is what you're talking about. The only difference between that and absolute is that absolute takes into account the 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 base rate at which happened in the trial. So so, so actually I I will go you know ahead. What? Let's uh, just uh, just to uh, start. Let's go back one page. Or actually assume... actually uh, because we're talking about the vaccine, I think it might be better if I start with this if that's okay. Okay, I think what we should do though is just define okay. the terms uh, okay. of what what is absolute rel what is absolute risk reduction and what is relative risk reduction and why for you as an individual would the absolute risk reduction be the more important figure to actually know? I, I think okay. that's a like in other words, if we removed ourselves from Corona, and by the way. I think all vaccines are marketed with the absolute risk reduction. So I don't think that they pulled this move specific to Corona. Uh, but even even with that being said, I think it's a very important thing for people to understand. Uh, and so why don't we have, at least just to kind of start off to find the terms? Absolutely. And I do want to preface this as in um, I, I'm 100 percent sure of what we just talked about. And I am a little less certain. Of, I, I don't want to say anything that's completely wrong, but I will give a good idea and and um, and speak about this to the best of my abilities. Um, that being said, I think um, I could probably reach out to a friend that's in clinical trial management that might be able to help more. Um, but let me give it a shot. So, whoops. Okay, so for relative risk reduction, this is actually really easy to understand. It's really the absolute where um, where the uh, where the confusion comes in. So let's say we're running a clinical trial and we have 100 people vaccinated. Um, I'm going to sign them PVs and 100 people unvaccinated, PUVs. So in the trial, 8 out of 100 of the PVs got COVID, while 80 out of 100 of the PUVs got COVID. So this means that uh, in the unvaccinated population, there was an 80% chance of getting COVID or 80 out of 100. Um, and so... Uh, in the vaccinated uh, population, there was an 8% chance. And so by reducing the, uh, the risk from 80 people that got COVID to eight people in this, uh, in this uh, clinical trial, you actually reduce the relative risk uh, by 90%. Or you, you basically pulled down the relative risk just based on the people that would have gotten COVID if they weren't vaccinated. Right. So in other words, I went from just to uh, look, just to put this in different terms. Right, right, right. I went from an 80% chance of getting sick to an 8% chance of getting sick, which is very good. If you yeah. told me, hey, there's an 80% chance that you walk outside right now, you're getting sick or you can take this, and then there's only an 8% chance, I go, oh, shit, that thing's pretty good. And then it becomes more interesting when you start doing the filtrations down to 
well, what were my risks of getting seriously yeah. sick? And what's my risk of getting ending up in the hospital? Probably. And then how do I compare these two things? So, right. but just to explain that. So that's what we're looking at here. Okay. Yeah, no, brilliant. And that, that, that was put so articulately. You are absolutely right. And and so, you know, and, and I think what you just said too will help us both understand the, the ARR, but that's just such an interesting um, manipulation. It's not a manipulation tactic, but it can be, right? Like, oh, like this, this reduces your risk of a, uh, a meteor falling on you by, by 300%. You know, oh, well, what's the original risk of a well, meeting falling on me? Yeah. J- just to explain to the audience the part that we haven't said yet, um, and then we can look at the specific numbers. So when they tell me, hey, there's th- this works like 95%, so that sounds like I'm going from zero to 95, right? So what it sounds like is a minute ago, if I walked outside, you know, there was I don't know. Let's just say, no, it almost makes it sound like there's a hundred percent chance. There's very likely I'm going to get sick. And now that I've taken this only 5% of people are going to get sick. The reality is, um, and I don't know the numbers, you might know the specific numbers, but let's say that only 50% of people will even show symptoms and only 20% are going to be like sick, sick and only 10% are going to. Okay. So now let's just, let's go with the most simple figure that people really care about. Let's go with hospitalization. So sick that I'm going to end up in the hospital. So if you look at the group of, let's say 25 year olds, how many 25 year olds are ending up so sick, they're going to end up in the hospital. I don't know, 10%. So if you're taking this vaccine, right. And so that means that your current risk reduction, your current risk was basically you were at 90%, your, your natural immunity was at 90%, right? right? So now you've increased right. by taking the experimental vaccine from, from 90 to 95, right? Well, yeah, you went, well, you went well, from... Yeah. The, oh, sorry to jump on you, but this is actually good to ARR too. So you just said that, that 25-year-olds have a 10% chance of dying from COVID, right? And then the vaccine is 90% effective, right? So, so that means that basically the ARR there would only be 9%. Right. So, but just to like keep it in, in dumb people's terms, right? Yeah. So the important thing to evaluate whether or not it is worth the risk reduction of taking the vaccine, it's also important to understand how much of an increase in protection is it giving me? And so when they tell you, well, this is 95% effective, they're not telling you, well, how much of an increase is that? Where am I, what am I going from? Was right. I going from zero to now 95 or for my risk category, was I going from 95 to 95 or was it going oh. from 90? If I'm 14 years old, what am I going from 94 to 95 or right. 94.5 to 95? Can I give like, an example? Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, so basically let's say I have, um, uh, I, I got a uh, hundred dollars or I got like a thousand dollars worth of stock. I can, I can lose all the way down to, and only have $1 that stock can go from a thousand dollars to $1. And then it could go back up to $2 and then that's a hundred percent change, right? Even though the stock's still only $2 and started at a thousand dollars, once it hits one and bounces to two, I can say that's a hundred percent change. Okay. So just to kind of let, let's, let's let people walk around. Cause I don't know that we've done the best job of breaking yeah. down uh, terms, but like you said, you're not, you're not a statistician. Uh, so let's, let's talk to what you are an expert on, which is kind of, uh, the health analysis, but let's just give some something tangible for people right. to walk away from. And so what we're trying to equate, what we're trying to establish is um, if I am a otherwise healthy individual, 
what benefit exists to me of taking the vaccine? So they're reporting 95%, but we can just say that's a worthless figure because my natural immunity, theoretically, let's just throw out a number, could be 92. So do I really want to take an experimental thing for a 3% increase in potential immunity? It's like, it's a very different way of assessing whether or not this is an intelligent decision. So what we need to look at is the natural immunity or natural death rates versus people that have taken this in the um, marginal increase. Because in other words, you got to throw out the 95% figure. This is a new thing. And so let's not pretend like it's every other vaccine and that there's no risk of potential side effects. There is risk. It might be a small amount of risk, but is that risk of potential long-term side effects greater than the, right. the, the very intangible increase of having taken this thing. By the way, nobody is having this conversation. Yeah, and I am confused by it, but this is the most important thing to establish. And, and by the way, I, I, and then I'll yeah. hand it back to you. The other thing that makes it even harder to quantify is that the things that would not be priced into this conversation are, have I already had the virus and maybe I have natural immunity? And like, so there, there's even more variables that would make this maybe lean more towards it doesn't make sense to get. And I'll hand it back to you so we can look at some of the actual numbers. Just recapping once more, 95% throw it in the garbage. If you're a healthy individual, that is not a good figure for establishing how much benefit will come from this. So I'm handing it back to you to establish how much real benefit exists in taking it. Absolutely. And I don't want to be the dead horse, but just on that point, if someone says um, it has a 95% risk reduction, but you're already, like you said, um, uh, like 92% uh, immune, then what you would do uh, is take the opposite uh, or take 100 minus 92. So then that's 8%. And then you would take 95% of that 8%. And then that's the number that it would kind of, it would help you. But, uh, but, but, to, but to put that aside, so, so um, to just uh, put, place a, a term to go from RRR to ARR, the only the real um, number, like you just said, that uh, of interest is the ARR, which is exactly what you just said. It's the effectiveness the vaccine gives you over your already uh, risk that's calculated in the vaccine trial. And so, this is the actual trial information, which is really cool. And so we can actually have RRR and ARR calculated here in the uh, equations for us. And so what I found really interesting is here on the left side are the different uh, vaccines. And then here uh, you'll have the vaccine and the placebo group for Pfizer and BioNTech. The small N is the number of individuals that got COVID, while the big N is the number of individuals in each arm of the trial. And then so to get the, uh, the relative risk rate, all you do is take the small N of the vaccine which is normalized. So it's basically uh, the percent of people that got uh, COVID that got the vaccine. And you divide that by the amount of people that got COVID that were in the uh, placebo group. Does that make sense? Yes and no. I'm really bad with uh, math and equations. So I can follow the theme of what we're trying to look at. I don't know that I can conceptualize exactly what your equation was. Yeah, no, the, and and honestly, um, don't. It's not the equation isn't important. All I'm saying is that it's calculated by seeing what percent of people that were vaccinated got COVID and what percent of people that were unvaccinated got COVID. Kind okay. Of like kind of like we already said, this just puts actual numbers to it. If you so, want. wouldn't wouldn't the figure I would want to look at be the um people that got COVID 
divided by the study group in the vaccinated group versus the people that got COVID in the placebo divided by the total number in that group. And then if I minus, like if I took the, let's just say, let's just keep the numbers really simple so that the math is easy. Okay. Let's say in the unvaccinated, in the vaccinated group, one out of a hundred got it. And the unvaccinated group, 10 over a hundred got it. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's simple percentages. Um, in the vaccinated, in the unvaccinated group, I had a 10% risk, right. Mm -hmm. Versus in the vaccinated risk, I I vaccinated group, I had a 1% risk. So my risk reduction is, uh, I mean, that would be 90%. I have a 90% greater odds of no, I lost myself there. Uh, it's one, uh, one tenth. So you take, you take the rate. Yeah. So you, you take, so like, let's say, um, if 10, if 10 times, uh, yeah. Or, or like, so if only one person did, it would be a 90, uh, 90%, uh, reduction in risk because it go from right. 10 to one. Yeah. Oh, so I had it right. It's a 90% yeah. risk reduction. Uh, but then would that be the relative risk or the apps that at that point that would be the absolute risk reduction. For, no, that would be the relative risk reduction because right. essentially I'm reducing my risk by, uh, I'm getting lost here. So I'll let you continue. I'll hand it back to you. Like I said, I'm not great with math. No, no. So, so basically, so like the, and the thing is that you also sometimes have to uh, multiply by a hundred just to get the percent, but yeah, right. so basically, um, so it's essentially just the rate that, um, that uh, these guys are vaccinated or, or that the vaccinated get COVID. Um, what, what percent of that uh, is, is um, a part of the, the non-vaccinated that get COVID. So basically, um, you know, what, what percent, how, what percent does the vaccine protect you if you were to get COVID? Okay. And so it looks to me like for Pfizer, so is that going to be an 8.4% increase of protection if I take it? Or is that a, like when I, once I get to the ARR, and it's 0.008.84. So am I doing that times 100 to get my percentage? Is that 8.4 or am I not reading that right? Uh, um, it's 0.008. So if you times 100, it'd actually be 0.8. Okay. So in other words, the absolute yeah. risk reduction is less than 1%. Correct. Yep. And then, and then, and that's, and those, and that I believe is the article that you linked me. Um, I, and that's where they got those numbers from. Of the Lancelot article. now wouldn't now I would have to guess though yeah. that if we start looking at the age categories that's going to change like so that that almost needs to be I'm going to assume that that's skewed for an anti-vax argument um, because your under forty year olds are not dying anyways but your absolute risk reduction is probably going to be much greater in your sixty five to eighty five year olds now you and I might be able to then take a look at how many people actually die in a year and go well those people are going to die anyways. Um, so in other words, you might've been buying yourselves a couple months, but looking at this, your absolute risk reduction from taking this is less than 1%. So that is the, that is the value that taking the vaccine is bringing to you. And now the absolute risk reduction, that is, is that in terms of getting sick or that is in terms of dying from, from Corona? This is in terms of infection. And I don't want to, I don't want to speak. That just seems too fanat. That just sounds too fantastic. So it's like, because more than I, I would just it, to right. put it the other way, if I took a population of 100 vaccinated people and 100 unvaccinated people, uh, and by the way, these stats are for original COVID. We're not even looking at Delta. I would assume that 
ah, fuck this is getting this is getting complicated. All right, let me just say this different. A hundred people in each group, right? I would assume maybe you know my original group, fifty people are showing symptoms, and then in the vaccinated group, only one is showing symptoms, right? That right. Th- this stat. Well, uh, well, well so, so actually, well, so also what throws this off is just to your point. Not that many people are getting COVID, man. Look at this in the placebo group. That means unvaxxed. Um, and, and I'm going to have to redo and look up the endpoint of the study. You're right. It can't just be a positive PCR test. It's got to be more invasive. But look at this. Only 185 so out of 14,000. 14, dude, what, what does that even mean? That's like, yeah, what that sounds. I mean, what's you can do the math right now. I'm not good with math. My yeah. head, but what's, what's 185 divided by 14,000? Because that's uh, your risk of infection. Yeah. Right. I, 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 I don't want to open a new tab and freeze my computer. I don't have a calculator, but it's very low. Um, it's a, it's almost, but a that, can't, uh, that can't, that can't be the, yeah, I mean, that just sounds normal. like both that can't be the rate of infection for COVID. I mean, that just can't, Dude, it, but, but, but this is what everything's, this is what all the numbers are coming from. Isn't this, it just, something isn't adding up. Right. Because literally I'll just off the top of my head. That's like a little bit, that's like less than 2%. It's like 1.5%. So the infe- like that would suggest that the infection rate for COVID without protection is one point five percent. I feel like I feel like this has to be death. No- like if this was death numbers, these numbers would make sense. If these are infection Ooh. numbers, it sounds like it doesn't make sense. Maybe. No. Oh, sorry. I didn't. Mean- I'm getting excited. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, you. it's it's fine. I'm gonna have to guess that what we're looking at here is death or critical illness, not just general infection. Right. Because otherwise, I don't know. The math just seems too off. It, it's it's got to be, but um, it might be hospitalizations. But yeah, let's not speculate. I will I will look into it. Um, but I think it's really uh, yeah, it's awesome. Um, to to unpack these and no, thank you. Um, for letting me and and I think that's that goes to your point about ARR, man. If only one point five percent of people in the in the placebo group are getting it, you know, how much better can they make the vaccine look? You know? Right. Right. Okay. So just let, let's speak to what we know. Let, like, like, let's, let's speak in definitives. Mm-hmm. There is a conversation to be had about how much risk is getting this vaccine taking off my plate. Right. Mm-hmm. And especially considering the fact that it's new and the fact that it's new means that it's not as tested. There could be issues down the line. It's very important to know how much good can possibly come from taking this. Now, their story is that, well, we're never going to beat this thing and it's going to continue to evolve unless you get it. Now, we've already pointed out that's not true. If anything, the vaccines might be amplifying the evolution or at a minimum, we know that it's not going to stop the evolutions because it's not built for that. So once we've established that and we've established that that whole narrative of like the evolutions are only coming because of people that aren't vaccinated, it's very important for us to determine, okay. So what is the actual benefit from taking this? Like, can you give me a number? If I'm a 25-year-old and I'm healthy, what is the actual number? Now, I don't want to hear about anyone else's health because that's, that's bullshit. Firstly, I don't think it's that individual's responsibility. Uh, and we, can get, we don't have to get into that, like, that conversation. Um, but also, you haven't proven the fact that the younger people would be responsible for transition or new variants more than the vaccinated group. So it's a very important figure to establish how much benefit can possibly come from this. And if you just want to show the misinformation that exists, that should be a clear figure. If we're actually concerned in people's health and we're actually concerned in science and good information and people to be able to make decisions that would make sense for them and doctors to be able to make good decisions, 
you and I, reasonably intelligent people, should not be having this hard of a time to try and go to a website and figure this out. This should be the conversation. This should be the conversation on CNN literally every night. Every night. If yep. people actually cared about information and data, and it could be, let's just say, theoretically, me and you are the world's biggest idiots, and right. we couldn't be more wrong at the way that we're looking at this. Well, guess what? We're not the only people who are wondering about this kind of shit, and this would be the conversation every night as opposed to, hey, it's safe and effective, and we're going to give it to kids. And pregnant woman now, and everyone in the military has to get it. What? Yeah. I, you know, right. Yeah. I, and, 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 and I'm just saying like, yes, like, uh, you know, if you're, if you're going to Africa, you've got to get a lot of vaccines. I definitely would, but the risk reward, right. Let's say we're doing a vaccine against, um, you know, I'm just pulling something out, a certain strain of malaria, you would be able to uh, have an endpoint that's very clear. Right. And that number would be very high or, um, you know, uh, let's say, um, trying to think of a infectious virus, that would be easy. Uh, maybe, I don't know, just chicken pox, right? That would be a very easy one because uh, it's a, the endpoint's easy and it spreads very fast and everyone gets infected. But that's not really what we're seeing here. All right. So uh, what are we going to look at next here? Yeah, and actually that's um, that's all I got um, for today. I, I didn't have time to... Okay, so to let people know what they can stay tuned for, uh, if you guys remember months ago, Sam Parker came on the show and uh, Sam Parker is a, a personal favorite of mine, and he's been really on top of the COVID stuff in a very in-depth way. And he sent us animal studies where um, essentially not only did they jump to human trials or you know, basically putting it into us without good data, it would appear as if the animal studies, uh, at least from what I saw, uh, were n ended up with – I, I want to be careful about this. There were problems in the animal studies and Sam Parker put in the harsh terms of that there was widespread illness and death and that it was when variants came that, yes, the mRNAs worked for like the initial virus. Uh, I'm sorry. Were you, were, were no, you, I, I didn't. Oh, okay. read them I didn't know this information. So that kind of backs up what I was saying. Huh. OK. Yeah. No. So what he said, which was fascinating, was that the mRNA in the animal studies worked on the initial on the initial virus, when they infected them with variants, it actually weakened natural immunity and had significant problems. Right. Now, I had a doctor look at those studies to say, hey, is that at least like I get that that might be a fantastical claim to say that the mRNA studies led to widespread death in animals. But is that at least a true claim? Now, you and I can understand that uh, true and fantastic are different. For example, it is true that the death rates on the VAERS reporting system has skyrocketed this year. That is a true statement. It also does not give you the evidence to say that you shouldn't take the vaccine because you're looking at an increase of 2,000 to 6,000 when there were 100 million doses distributed. So it doesn't really mean anything. So there's a difference between true and fantastic. So I emailed the doctor just to say this was an unbelievable claim that the animal studies that they did led to widespread death. Is it true? It is technically true, at least based on the studies that Sam Parker sent me. Now, I, I put them into an episode description. I said, can somebody please validate this? Somebody with a higher level science degree validated that it was true. And someone with a higher level science degree also said that this was like for tuberculosis or for other like mRNA applications. So it really cannot be compared right. to the current applications. That is so above my pay grade. I have no fucking clue. However, what we're trying to establish just to bring this full circle and we will do a sec second episode on it and we will also clarify 
uh, the absolute risk reduction versus the relative risk reduction. That's part of the thrill of being on the show is being able to engage with uh, people that kind of know their shit and learning, and it's a learning process. So just to lay it out, we're trying to look at the very specific risk versus reward of healthy individuals taking this. Now, we have established that at a minimum, uh, not being vaccinated is certainly not pushing the evolution of these viruses. So now the question is, is there a benefit to me of taking it? How big is the benefit and how big is the potential risk? So we're going to have to clarify how big is the benefit as we kind of clarify what we're looking at here in terms of absolute risk reduction. And then we're going to do another episode once we look at those studies to see what can we forecast in terms of potential risk of uh, side effects. Absolutely. And, um, and maybe just to give some teasers for the next one. Um, off the top of the head, uh, the first things that I'm concerned about with the vaccine is residual mRNA expression and residual spike protein getting expressed. There is, <laughs> once, once the various pseudo-like viral particles containing the mRNA get injected into your muscles, they go everywhere in your circulatory system, everywhere. And it's up to your immune system, particularly uh, your innate immune system, to come by and really clean up the cells that are transiently expressing this mRNA. Now, there is uh, such a thing called reverse transcriptase, and a lot of people will point out that human cells do not have reverse transcriptase. This is the enzyme that would be capable of taking that mRNA, turning it into DNA, and then escorting it to the nucleus of the cell where it would then integrate. And so this is a pretty, this is an extremely unlikely event. And as mentioned previously, reverse transcriptase is very it's not really expressed in human cells, although there can be an argument that the line one element that's actually highly expressed in cancers is an active reverse transcriptase. So that is um, interesting. And so that's a little technical for later. But okay. um, uh, finally, just to take a step back, there's no reason we can't use the same PCR test to test for residual uh, viral mRNA from the vaccine. And there's no reason we can't be taking blood tests of people that got the vaccine months ago and testing for spike protein. These are very easy, very cheap tests to do. And I haven't seen them done anywhere. Okay. So just to, uh, bring this home, the things that we are going to, we're going to continue this conversation. And then the last thing we're going to take a look at is we do want to prove certifiably that they're lying and manipulating data um, to showcase the fact that it would be foolish to trust these people. Lucky for us, I think they made a pretty big blunder in uh, their recent recommendations about what they're looking to do with vaccinating kids and pregnant women. I really don't think that they right. seemingly have the data to support that. And to me, if we can prove that they're lying, then they're lying. Um, so, guys, we are going to continue. Um, it, it, are you on social or is there anywhere that people can find you or are you kind of off the grid? Oh, man, I'm off the grid, but I will say buy Bitcoin. There you go. Get in the Bitcoin plug in. Um, hey, man, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we will do uh, I, um, I mean, this this weekend I'm in Nashville, so uh, we'll plan out when we're, we're going to continue this topic. But uh, I mean, I'm, I, I think I said this before the episode. I, I, I'm not that I'm not interested in the Fed and money anymore, but I was obsessed with the Fed because I knew that they were lying to me and it was like an unbelievable grift. Uh, the, and sometimes when they start pushing regulation in regard to uh, global warming, I can see through it. And I know that they're looking for more control over the economy. Like I can just see through it. I know that they don't have the data to support what they want to do. Uh, this is it, in my eyes, it seems to be just as big of a con. 
And it's the one that's like uh, most pressing at this time. Not that the Fed's not important or the global warming shit's not important, but like this is what tomorrow might mean. I'm not allowed to show up to work. Like this is really, really uh, pressing. Uh, so I'm obsessed with as much as possible trying to understand it and share the information. So I appreciate that you took the time and we're definitely going to do a second segment. So thank you. Yeah, no, definitely. And thank you guys, man. It's really given me hope. I, I was pretty depressed here for a little bit and really turned my back on, you know, sciences and even reading these peer reviewed papers. They're so they're so politicized. But um, no, thank you, Robin. And thank your your viewers, man. Let's stay strong. All right, beauty. Have a great night, dude. Later. All right. And as promised, we are back on the stream. Let me introduce our panel of judges for the most scientific study ever done. Cause by the way, I'm a scientist now after all the COVID talk and you know, my warnings to people about how they shouldn't listen to their doctors or take new vaccine treatments. Um, I I'm, I'm now a medical scientist. And so I've put together a panel of judges that are going to help us better understand what workouts we should do to be sexy as hell. It's already midsummer, uh, So we're a little bit behind, but we're going to do what we can. And as the Olympics is going on, uh, we're going to delve into what Olympic athletes have the best bodies. So first, let's go around and let's introduce, or why don't I have, I'll start with Shannon. Why doesn't everyone uh, introduce themselves to the Run Your Mouth audience? Sure. Um, I'm Shannon Lee. I host a podcast called The Thing Is, Ding, on Gas Digital Network. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think I have an odd perspective as to what makes a man hot. So I'm, I'm excited to uh, go through these athletes. All right. And then we'll loop down to Bobby. Hi, I'm Bobby. Uh, I'm a fan of the show, and I also think I have a unique perspective on what makes a man hot. So I'm looking forward to this discussion. Okay, uh, and uh, Bobby's also a legal scholar, so we're going to no. get some uh, some academics here. And then uh, Robert, me and you, we're going to have to judge some dudes here. Uh, and I do think it's important for everyone to kind of you know lay out what their style in man is. So mm -hmm. Robert, why don't you first tell us what you find sexy in a man? I like a winner. I like someone who's strong and uh, capable, funny, witty, <laughs> nice calves. Oh, dude, my calves are unbelievable. I mean, that's why I'm showing them off. This is the calf camera. Robert, will you will you sponsor if I get it? I mean, I'm not getting a tattoo, but if I got a fake sheath tattoo and a calf cam. <laughs> All right. So I think establishing people's tastes in men is going to make a big difference. Cause like, if you're into a small Asian dude that you can peg, you're going to go, you know, ping pong, you're going ping pong, right? If you're looking for a giant Jack dude, uh, it's going to be probably more of the wrestlers. And if you're looking for someone real lean with those washboard abs, it's going to be more in the swimming. Uh, so why don't we let Bobby go first? What to you? And first tell us your general style and then tell us some dream celebrities of who fit your style of hotness. Um, so I don't, I can't have too much muscle because I need to be able to have a beer with the guy. Um, I'm also very tiny, so he can't be too big. Um, celebrities, I, I don't know. Uh, David Beckham is a good one, but he's a little too muscular even to like date just to look at. Okay. I find just to break that down because that that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. If they're if they're too lean and cut, you know that they're going to be a snob about what they eat, and they're not going to be fun to hang out with. And then you also don't want someone who's sizably bigger. But Shannon, you're going to object to that because oh you God. look for something very different. 
Yes. This is crazy to me what Bobby is saying, but I know that we could be friends because we would never go after the same guy. Um, I feel like there is no such thing as too big ever. I'm also a small person. I'm like just barely five one, but um, I feel like the, the bigger, the better. I also am not um, on board for too cut up, like not an Instagram model or something like that um, for several reasons. But um, yeah, I, I, I just like bulky, like a big, bulky guy. But they can't be uh, like lugging a gut or like big titties it, or it, it, is that even OK? It's like you just they just need to have like the, the big frame. I like so, like solid, like not not like flabby all, all over the place too much. A little bit of like a beer belly is is acceptable. The boobs, I'm not I don't know if I could get past that. But um, yeah, just like big, solid. Okay. Well, now that I feel terrible about myself, uh, <laughs> what I look for in a dude is firstly, they got to have a great cock. Like if I'm in the gym, like that's the first thing I'm, I'm noticing. If like a dude's got like a really respectable piece, I like to sit there, take a good look and imagine what my life would be like if I was them. Uh, and then I'm a little bit on the Shannon side. I like, like, like I, I'm always, what I find most intimidating or are the dudes that are like clearly broad shouldered, but like they don't care enough to get cut, cut. I find those the dudes you're like, oh, that that's you know what I mean? Like when it's just got the big frame, which I feel like uh Robert, you might agree. Well, you're you're more of like a lean MMA type guy. Yeah. Uh I guys that look like me primarily are very attractive, I think. <laughs> Five eight, one fifty, one sixty, nothing too major, just basic. But I do try. And you know what? Somebody that puts in an effort, but I guess in all seriousness, like uh, Yoel Romero, he's like a wrestler. Oh, yeah. I mean, that guy straight up has uh, a superhero body, um, yeah. which you can get when you live in uh, – wait, where's he from? He's from Cuba. Yeah. And they must uh, – I mean, I don't know what the steroids program down is in socialist countries, but they uh, – socialism is at least getting that right. I think it's IV. They just go straight to the blood. Uh, Do you, either of you know – here, I'll pick. I'll, I'll pull up a picture of Yoel Romero. Because um, – well, I don't think Shannon likes dark people, but otherwise the body would work. <laughs> oh, I didn't. By by the way, just to go against that, my ideal celebrity would be The Rock. Is he? Uh, he's like Hawaiian brown, though, so I feel like Samoan or yeah. I think his dad was black, I believe. Well, that's okay. So, so that that's nice. that's Yoel Romero. He might be a little too cut for you, Shannon. I mean, I'm not hating it. How tall is he? Mm. I don't think he's too tall, like five nine, maybe. He's not that tall. Yeah, I don't think he's that tall. But Bobby, that would be too much for you. You wouldn't want to get plowed out by that. Um, his tits are bigger than mine. I, I I'm gonna say no. I don't know if uh, <laughs> if it's hard rock if you can declare them as tits. Maybe. I, I feel like it's got to be flab in order for for it All to right, be considered fair. tits. Well, and this dude was an Olympic wrestler. We were talking about Olympic body reviews and whatnot. Yeah. So I, I did some research. I was like looking. I got, That's I got, true. You know what? Fuck, you might have just ruined the segment because you're not going to beat Yoel Romero in I terms of body. I, didn't, I was just going to the bathroom. I didn't do <laughs> Shannon, do you think in, in terms of bodybuild, like, is that ideal to you or this is too cut and not big enough? Yeah, I mean, five eight. Like, for, just talking about ideal. I'm not trying to short shame. Just talking about ideal. Five eight is definitely too short to be like in my, in my <laughs> ideal area. <laughs> I think, uh, Mike. Can you guys still hear me? I know my camera just went yeah. down. Yeah, we can hear you. 
All right. Uh, I'm going to adjust that battery in a minute. But what I'd like to do in the meantime is I don't think it's worth taking a look at every event. And as I said, what I figured we can do as a scientific study is we're going to look through all the events and kind of pull out what we think would have the best bodies. We'll pick like, you know, probably five of these. Uh, We'll eliminate some of these just because we know that, you know, these men are clearly not going to be good looking. Uh, And then as we find the ones of interest, we're going to YouTube the event and we're going to figure that whoever was in that final event is a decent sample size to get an idea of whether or not that sport is good looking. Uh, The one kicker here is that some athletes wear more clothes than others. So obviously if you're an event where like, you know, most your ass and abs is showing, it's going to be a little bit easier to be intriguing than like, you know, people that are fully covered up. So, you know what I mean? There's going to be, uh, it's not a perfect study, but we're doing the best we can as podcasters coming together and trying to solve the world's problems. Uh, so let's start with basketball. Um, I feel like that doesn't really fit. Well, actually, Shannon, you like super tall dudes, but usually they're not that muscular. Right. Yeah, this will this will meet the height requirement, but I think that's probably it. All right. Anyone else think uh, basketball is going to come in for their top dudes? I mean, I'm going to say no. All right. They get a lot of, they crush a lot of stuff, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> All right. Archery, you're going to, you're, you're dealing with nerdy, chunky dudes. So, is it, I, though? Is it not like a, I don't know what an archer looks like. Yeah. I'd be curious to see if it's like a woodsy. Yeah. Cameron James, Joe Rogan, these guys do archery, but oh. these guys don't look like Joe Rogan. And- <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. These people don't look. Never mind. I mean, Shannon, is that not the ideal <laughs> for you? Is that not exactly what you look for? That looks like uh, um, Maddie if he got into the outdoors. <laughs> and grew a mustache, yeah. Oh, boy. Never Wait, mind. let's see Let's see who won it. Uh, apparently an Asian lady won. No, I think this guy was the winner who looks like, uh, I, I mean, he looks like a nerdy kid who you would think would be playing the computer version of this. That's what he looks like. Or some sort of like mercenary. He's like taking people out on rooftops. He looks pretty, (laughs) killed people for a living. And like you would never suspect him. Not a chance in hell. He's from Turkey. All right. Artistic gymnastics. I'm not even going to look up. No, yes. Yes. Men's gymnasts. But artistic gymnastics. I mean, even if the guy's good looking, he's not going to be like, He's gay. I, I hate to say it. There's no way that you're going to end up sleeping with that dude. I didn't realize that's what we were judging. Yo, okay. You see, that's the legal scholar for you. <laughs> I thought we were just judging them purely based on looks. Uh, that, that's what happens when you pull from the libertarian fan base. Fair enough. Uh, so I'm looking up uh, artistic gymnastics. And let's watch this on the YouTube. And I hope only Will Ferrell comes up. I hope everyone <laughs> looks like... Remember that scene? What, what movie was that in? Uh, old school? Old school, school yeah. Um, I think I might be overworking. Well, we'll see if we can pull it up. Uh, what's it called again? Someone help me out here. I'm dumb. Artistic, uh, artistic gymnastics. gymnastics. I hope we end up with an autistic kid. <laughs> I see your algorithm. I like it. I uh, I don't even think they'll show us the men's. They try and pretend like it's not an actual event, or maybe they don't, maybe they don't allow men to do it. Which I uh, you know that that that's got to change. I don't know. They allow men to do it. They're pretty good looking. Oh, here we go. Oh, you know what? This guy already, these guys look pretty handsome already. 
Yeah. Oh, it's an hour and 50 minutes. We're not doing that. No. no. All right. Let's jump ahead to when there's some dudes doing ballet. It's not All right. Let's like just pa- it was gonna be. Let's just pause on that. I mean, if I had to plow out some clean looking gay kid, that's got <laughs> like, I mean, that guy's got a body already. I mean, I don't really do like a Ken doll, but objectively, I think people would find that attractive. All right, let's uh, let's fast forward to another random moment and let's see what we're working with. This guy looks the same. I mean, that's pretty cut. Yeah, that's basically how I look. <laughs> but. It's nice. He's too pretty for me, yeah. but yeah, his arms are lovely. Yeah, agree. So it's not too much muscle for you, Bobby. No. So we're going that these guys are good build, but a little bit too pretty. It's not masculine enough. Okay. Yeah, that's what yeah, I that's thought. fair. Okay, but imagine a guy doing that on top of you. What's going to be? <laughs> I mean, that's got to be the best experience of your entire life. I'm excited. <laughs> 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 I right. it. it seems like too much work for me. All right, artistic swimming. I don't even know if the men's do if the men do this. Uh, but does, is that of interest to anybody? No. All right. Next up is going to be athletics. Now, I don't know. Like, that's too broad of a category. It's the Olympics. I feel like you have to actually give me a name. I feel like this may be prom- a promising category, though. That's like track and field, right? Oh. It's what? It's all of track and field. Maybe they give us a better uh, a better breakdown. Athletics. Uh, it's pretty much everything, I think. Yeah, it's too it's too broad. I'm skipping it. Uh, badminton. I don't think we got to look at that. That's like tennis for people that can't play tennis. Yeah. Uh, baseball and softball. Actually, all right. Softball. You know, those are fat bottom people. But baseball. I actually think Shannon. Baseball players probably like pitchers in certain positions are exactly what you're looking for. Yeah, I feel like these days, like not back in the day, baseball players, like these days where they're all juicing and thick, I, I do, yeah, I can I can get down with the baseball player. Please, camera's back. I feel like their arms would be nice and nice and bulky. Yeah. Baseball players sometimes uh, uh, in the uniforms, I don't know, they've got that exact build where like they're massive, but they're not too like cut or lean. I cool. they always have like good good beards, fucking cool hair, and like some jewelry dangling. <laughs> and I feel like thick thighs. I feel like in the uniform mm-hmm. you can see their thick legs. Okay, all right. I feel like we we all know what baseball players look like, so I don't feel like we have to look that one up. But we can put it on the top of the list: men's beach volleyball. Tom Cruise. I don't know. Is that where he comes from? Men's beach volleyball. He was Is that a his tough background. Gun. Tough good. Maybe that's a an old Please. reference. Let's look it up. Men's beach volleyball. I don't need to say it out loud. That's nice that's typing. <laughs> Thanks, dude. dude. Yeah. Oh, that guy looks pretty handsome. Yeah. By the way, these are tall men. I just think they're a little too lean for Shannon. Yeah, I'm out. I'm out for this one. It's just it's not your thing. It's too too it's lean, too, too cut. Yes, too skinny. Look, they're like nothing. There's no oh. muscle there. You know, they're skinny, but I don't hate it. Yeah. I hate it. <laughs> I guess this is kind of more of like a broy dude almost. They can dunk. <laughs> that, guy's, <laughs> that guy's letting you know he's ready for you to get right in there. <laughs> How come they don't make them wear speedos? The ladies are out there with their asses out. That's a great point, Shannon. I feel like this would be the correct height for you, though. 
Yeah, the, the heights I'm not minding, but I hate everything else. Yeah. I don't like anything yeah. about this. I don't like that they're wearing shorts and uh, sleeveless shirts. I feel like they should be Speedos and nothing else. Also, why hats? That seems like it would get in the way. Oh, uh, yeah. Robert, you're a hat wearer. You want to defend hats? Well, it's maybe their hair is flopping around, but you know it's inside, so it's not blocking any sun. So I don't know. You know, maybe All right. oh. we're moving on. So I think thus far, amongst everything that we've taken a look at, uh, for Bobby, well, artistic gymnastics turned out to be a little bit uh, uh, too feminine. It wasn't quite the uh, masculine man that you were looking for. Uh, so we kind of got baseball and basketball, just your traditional sports in the lead. BMX freestyle. Anyone want to look at that? I feel like they're going to be little. They are going to be little. All right. And uh, not classy little. So it's not what Bobby would be looking for. What about you, Robert? I feel like you might be able to get around, get along with like some frisky, crazy BMX guy. I like a cool, like, I like to watch them do their art and whatnot it's like they have wings like red bull and they do cool tricks and stuff but then afterwards they're too broy. oh you know? it's almost like me with comedy where women see me on stage they're like he looks like he's fun to hang out with and then i get <laughs> off stage and I'm like oh no i've no like this is terrible so the bmx people are the same way where it's like they're doing the tricks they're like this guy's probably real cool but then he's just he's just not <laughs> exactly all right. I'm just trying to make sure I understand uh, boxing. All right. We got to take a look what the Olympic boxers look like, because usually boxers are incredibly cut. Uh, Shannon, would a heavyweight boxer be of interest to you? It sounds like it would have to be in the heavyweight category before it would be of interest. Yeah, I think heavyweight. Yeah, because I mean, I don't really know a lot of boxers, but I think of like a Mike, Mike Tyson's build. I, I enjoy that. Oh, that's way too big for me. But like a Manny Pacquiao, would that be of interest? Cut, little, little bit smaller. Uh, not for me. All right. So I don't know what weight class this is. This is not. Oh, I feel like these guys are small for you, Shannon. Yeah, I don't like this. Yeah. But is this good for you, Bobby? Oh no, there's nothing there. I mean, it's weird that they're hugging each other, but I mean, yeah, they got some muscle. I don't, I don't hate it. Robert, how long do you think you could last in a ring with an Olympic boxer? I would run around as much as I could and make it last, but a couple minutes. You think a couple minutes? I think well, I think I'd have 15 seconds. Well, if you I go think, straight ahead, then 15 seconds. Yeah. I think I no, I think it would be a body shot that would just put me down and like that would that would be it. I would run. How many how many times have you sparred, Robert? Or how often uh, do you spar? A couple, just not many, and I'm not good. And I, if I engaged, it would be 15 seconds, like you said. But I've, I've been watching a lot of these fighters, and they use the mat, they use the cage or whatever that's the space, and you get get away, get away from them. Don't let them hit you, and then you know, pick your shots. All right, let's see if we can watch one more. So all of the boxing guys, I think, until we get into the heavyweight category, are going to be very lean. I, uh, it seems like it might not quite be Bobby style of lean. And I think Shannon, when we get into the heavyweight category, they might actually be too heavy, except for some of the elites. What do you think of other heavyweights, Shannon? Like, uh, like a Tyson uh, Fury, or like uh, who are the other Deontay, big names? Deontay these days? Wilder, um, jo I have no idea. Anthony Joshua. I don't know what any of them look like. All right, let's take a look at the heavyweights, and we'll see if it passes the Shannon test. I actually watched this fight. This was a fun fight. Oh, wow. You yeah. see, these guys don't look very heavy. No, no they don't. They're just tall, maybe. Yeah. 
no, yeah, I, I don't like this. Their faces almost look too dumb for their bodies. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like the guy in the blue looks like he should be my size based off of his Jufro and face. <laughs> but for some I was going to say, the guy in the blue is way too short. How tall is he? I don't know. He's you can just tell. He's short compared to that other guy. Yeah, you might be right. But he looks kind of doofy. Whatever. All right. So, so far, we've looked at the highest athletes in the entire world and hated all of them. So <laughs> congratulations to us for being very picky on the men that we date. Um, I'm going to say that we can probably can, uh, skip past canoe and canoe kayak. I'm going to guess. Now, I think diving is going to be very much so up Bobby's alley. Mm-hmm. Uh, to tell you how good looking uh, diving can be, I believe Jason Statham was a diver at one point in his life, and he is an excellent representative of the handsome, bald community. So I, I hold him as kind of my benchmark in attractiveness. Uh, Shannon, is that a cat now? I didn't even know. <laughs> Did you always have a cat? I didn't know you were a cat person. I do, yeah. And uh, they always pop up when the camera is on. So I it kind of, with the face looking in at you, it looks like a sizable rat. <laughs> No. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, you have a beautiful cat. I didn't mean to offend you. All right. <laughs> Let's take a look at the 2021 Olympic divers. Robert, what do you think it is about the divers and swimmers that make them so so cut and good looking? Uh, I mean, they get up every morning. They get in that cold water and probably swim laps. So probably uh, like they're lean, you know, but not too muscular, just real fit. And they look, they always look clean. Well, cause that's cause they got to shave everything off. You're not allowed to have any hair in that sport. Um, do you think, are these guys doing a lot of lifting and stuff outside of the pool or is this all just, if you actually spend four or five hours in a pool in a day, you're going to look this cut. Yeah. I feel oh, like I they would avoid lifting weights cause maybe it makes their, them too tight or. Not able I think it would need to be more aerodynamic. Yeah. Because they're all, I mean, every swimmer is super hard bodied and they all got like the almost Bruce Lee abs. The chest muscles seem to be pretty defined. Like, I, I feel like if you were trying to, uh, you know, pitch swimming as a workout, you know, more pictures of these guys is it's kind of a good sell. See, I would look at these abs all day, but I wouldn't date these abs because these abs don't go get beers. I don't know. Here's where you might be wrong on that. I see where you're coming from, but sometimes it's hard to gauge with some of these guys because they're actually doing so much exercise that sometimes maybe, maybe not beers, but like even what's his name? Like he used to eat like a, a ton of oatmeal. Like I know oatmeal is boring. You don't want to wake up as a, like you probably want to eat like some bacon and pancakes and eat whatever amount and stay thin. But like the last thing you want to do is eat a bucket of oatmeal. Uh, but some of these people, I think they can eat. Robert, would you would you agree with me? I feel like some of these guys can pound calories. They're just working out enough; they get away with it. Yeah, they're such uh, like athletes, and they burn so many calories. Like you said, they can they go and they get a little wild every now and then. I, I guess to speak to Bobby's point, though, in the general population, you're not finding a dude who's this cut who's not completely as obsessive in a, in a way that's not fun. Like yeah, I have a friend, you. yeah. For the most part, the friends I have that uh, look like that, it's like it's too obsessive where it's just it's not it's annoying. It becomes their whole personality. Well, and you get crazy when you're starving yourself all the time. So you're not going to be fun to hang around or get beers, you know, 
I agree. I've dated some just like amateur bodybuilders in the past and like how much they focused on every calorie, every macronutrient, how many times they went to the gym a day. It was obnoxious. So I can't even imagine somebody at this level, how much of a nightmare it would be. <laughs> okay. But Shannon, even amongst the bodybuilders, if you had to eat a dude's ass, it would probably be a guy <laughs> like this, right? I'm a swim. Yeah, probably a swimmer. So I'm definitely yeah. a smaller human being. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely. Nice gonna, clean. Yeah. All that, all that chlorine in there <laughs> all the time, especially after a dive when it comes right up in there. <laughs> it's like chlorine instead of bleach. Yeah. <laughs> it's gotta be the, the cleanest butts. All right. We've got five more minutes to uh, wrap up this bit. So let's pick a couple more to take a look at. And then we're going to make our Handball. official determination. Handball. What was that? Handball. Handball can't be good. Equestrian. I don't even know what equestrian is. It's riding horses. Horses. It's the horses. You can't see their bodies anyway. Okay. Golf, There's obviously not. Um, marathon. Football is soccer, right? That's not Yeah, and those guys are lean. Real lean. It's not your style. Although, Bobby, because Beckham's really cut, I bet there's a lot of football players that are your style. Kind of mm -hmm. thin, twinky, but in shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, judo, karate, those guys are all really cut. I uh, I think if you saw them without shirt ons, they would look good. But in the uniforms, it seems like they all seem like they're like have less muscle than I do. They're kind of real cut. Mm -hmm. uh, judo so I might don't not be bad because judo is like the throwing people around. I feel like judo may not be terrible. Right, Maybe let's bigger. Take, let's take a look. Uh, and uh, the claim, I mean, what makes judo so sexy is that uh, uh, Putin is a practitioner of judo. And I mean, I don't know what kind of steroids they take him, but for his age, he still looks pretty damn good. Touche. Vladimir. Vlad. Hey, you think we can get him some sheath? I feel like he would like sheath. Is there a way to get track him down? I don't want to get on his radar too much. But maybe. Yeah. <laughs> For the record, I do sleep in um, the sheath boy shorts for girls, oh, and I love them. I love that you said that. Thank you. <laughs> You're too kind. We're going to send you a care package. Thank you very much. We're actually sold out of those, but anyways, we'll get back They're to great. That. That's why. Thank you. Yeah, we can't see what they look like here. Yeah, this is uh, this is women's, which is, uh, I mean, maybe it was women's. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like they're wearing too much. Oh, too there you right? go. No, those are big dudes. Yeah. They're not like, they're not steroid big, but Shannon was right. These are like, these guys are built like the wrestlers. And I don't hate, I don't hate it. Too big. Too big. All right. Mm -hmm. Let's take a look at uh, three more. And I might've lost the page that had the, all the events on it. Now, Shannon, I think you're going to be disappointed by the Olympic weightlifters. Uh, because I actually think that they have the best edit. Oddly enough, they have like too much of a gut. Hmm. Let's pull them up. Let, let, let's pull up the wrestlers and let's pull up the uh, Olympic. Is if you think of like power lifters, for example, the mountain from Game of Thrones. I don't know. I follow him on Instagram and he has like a bit of a gut, but I love it. Okay. So this guy right here that I'm going to show you broke like all the records this year. Uh, and I think you're going to be surprised by how the strongest person in the world is not your archetype in any way. I see. He looks more like a competitive eater. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like, firstly, for some reason, it looks like he has a small wiener. It does. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And then that gut just looks like your fat uncle. Like, right. that does not look like. But it, does that in some ways make him more intriguing that he's that good at what he does and it's in strength training? No, Bobby's like turned off. She's ready to throw up in her own mouth. His legs, his legs don't fit on his body. Like they're very tiny. He's gonna have to actually curl up his stomach in order to engage in intercourse. <laughs> yeah, that belly is. It's a little. That is. You're right. That is too much. It's like it goes. Look how far well, it comes out. He drinks beers. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> he has a small wiener. He can't see it. True. <laughs> All right, let's take a look at a different weight class to see if maybe it's just outside of, uh, I assume, is weightlifting done by weight class in the Olympics? Uh, anyone know that? Or is it just, like this no. guy, I, this guy's more uh, more your style. I mean, he's a little small. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's small. But he has big legs and arms. And yeah, those chest. legs are pretty big. And looks like he has a much bigger penis. Yeah, especially for uh, whatever country he's from. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of definition on that guy. Mm-hmm. Bobby, is that too much for you? No. Nope. Oh, you could work with that. I could work with that. Okay. Now, I got a hot take for Shannon, which is when I was looking things up, I think the rowers are actually a good middle ground amongst all these dudes. Olympic rowing 2021. Um, which kind of makes sense because they're they're working a lot of Ooh. upper body. They might be too uh, too small for Shannon, but Ugh. I mean not th- not that guy that because <laughs> they put the thin guy up front because he's not rowing. So they- I remember the Winklevoss brothers were like rowers and they're tall and rich and handsome and whatnot. Just throwing that out there. I think they were. Yeah, I'm on Gemini. You on Gemini, Robert? No. What is that? Oh, uh, that that's the platform that they own. No, I'm gonna look it up. Okay. I feel like we got to get the close up so you can see uh, some of that upper body. I mean, it's impressive to watch. Wow, that is cool. The flags on the water. I don't know how they do that. I mean, this is why the ratings are so bad. They've got the best looking athletes in the world and like they do nothing to present them. You know, like they should walk down an aisle way beforehand, try on some different at like. They're so far away. Yeah, like I can't, I can't tell anything about these people, and who gives a shit about the sport? They're just moving in a straight line. Like, show us, show us, show us these people's butts and stuff. You know? All right, here, Team USA won, so we could take a look at them and see what these guys look like. If they show us, they might not. I swear, I thought I looked this up before, and I got the close up. Oh, this is women's. Would that ruin your tits or make your tits bigger as you're building up muscle behind it? I don't know how that works. No, I think it's going to flatten them out. Yeah, big time, I would say. Big it shoulders. Builds, it yeah, just ruins it. It builds the pack and like burns the fat. All right, let's check out two more sports. We're going to make a determination. Uh, Shannon, I think, uh, I think the wrestlers – are the wrestlers not muscular enough for you? Because they're, they're not really lifting weights. It's more of like a body weight type of build. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I feel like they're going to be not defined and also not big. Um, so I think it depends. So here's the heavyweight category. Uh, the American had an unbelievable win, like in the last couple seconds. Or we can just watch the circle go around. <laughs> 
You know, I was hoping to show off this guy's. Uh, all right, we're gonna have to switch over to Google Images to make the determination on wrestling. I mean, these are some big dudes, Shannon. Yeah, it's uh, it's better than I than I thought it would be. Yeah, the guy in the red. Yeah, look at that butt. <laughs> I mean, that, that that's a that's a big dude. Yeah. I guess yeah, it's gonna it's gonna come down to weight category. Like, I think in the upper, <laughs> like, look at that guy. Yeah, and a sleeve of tattoos. I, I like it. All right, let's look at one more hot wrestler, and then we can move on with our lives. Uh, I, oh, I mean, Shannon, look at that. Come on. Tell me that wouldn't be the greatest time of your life. <laughs> look at the way that guy can work his hips. That's like a bear on your back. That's the same oh. guy, right? I think so. I mean, yeah. I mean, you're going to be pinned down. That's the other thing. They know how to keep you in place. And then like and it's that. just, that's just like weight all over your back. That, that's got to be a good time. You can't hate on that. I wonder if I could start on my dating apps, um, put in in like the keywords wrestler going forward. I might do that. All right. Let's look at one last event, uh, and then we're going to call it a bit. Uh, thus far, while I go back and I try and find this, uh, why don't we go around the horn? Everyone can say what their leading event is uh, for best male body in the Olympics. I thought we were going to review females as well, but, you know, I, I feel like uh, we'll have to leave that for another time. At least we can make a determination of best male bodies in the Olympics. Uh, we'll go down the line, starting with Shannon. Uh, who's in the lead for you? I think it's probably the wrestlers. All right, Bobby. I'm going to go with the divers. Okay, and the divers can suck their own dick, uh, as you can see in the, from the picture here, which is really nice because then they don't bother you as much. So that I have not like, considered, but that is a plus, yes. That is a plus. Where you can be like, you can just do that for yourself. What are you bothering me for? Uh, ooh, I, wait, they don't play ice hockey in the – that's got to be a Winter Olympics. Winter, yeah. <clears throat> Otherwise, hockey dudes, that would definitely be my style. Robert, who's, who's your number one right now? I I mean I would probably agree with Shannon and the wrestlers just because there's a lot of positivity there. They're strong and muscular, and the, you know, and the shit goes down. They'll wrap somebody up and deal with it. So All right. we couldn't be friends then, Robert, because we would fight over the same guy. <laughs> oh dang it! Oh well. Before we give the win. Uh, to the divers, I think the last thing that we got to take a look at is going to be the Olympic swimmers. And I actually think the um, gold-winning American uh, was, like, unbelievably good-looking. I think he's this tatted-up giant dude with the biggest hockey you've ever seen. Uh, so, Shannon, I think you're going to be real into this guy. <laughs> I'm excited. We might have to change our vote. <laughs> yeah, I, I think this is going to change it for everybody. Here, let's see if the if we can go back to the YouTube. By the way, isn't it great that if you just do Olympic anything, the men are coming up first because that's all that anyone cares about? I just want to point that out. Now, you guys are less impressed by that. Patriarchy. All right, so off the bat, this guy's tatted up, so that's got to get some points, right, Shannon? It does, yes. What about for you, Bobby? Are tats a thing, or it's not of interest? I can I can take or leave. All right, he's got the cool goggles. Thus far, does that look okay? It's like a Terminator. 
or is it too it's too thin so far for Shannon? Yeah, he's got a great jawline, but um, yeah, I think too thin for me. Oh, do we miss him disrobing? That's like the the best moment. I think once we're in the water, they show you the body shots. But uh, Robert, what how's this doing for you? Uh, I, I like a cool tattoos, and it's pretty gangster. It's got some wings going. Uh, the glasses look cool. I think he looks cool. Oh no, too skinny. I'm out. I'm not out. I am very much in. Yeah, but I don't think you realize how tall that guy is. Hmm. I I would I would I would rather shorter and st and like thicker and than taller and, and skinnier. Wow, he's got a big old body, though. You know, I thought I saw a different picture of him where he had a more uh, muscular build. Uh, so let's all go down the line. Let's uh, take our picks. I feel like we've watched more Olympics than anyone in the entire country because <laughs> no one gives a shit about this. Uh, and I was hoping that I could succeed where NBC failed. Was it NBC or a no? NBC failed because they're not showing off these people's bodies enough. They're too focused on the sports that no one gives a shit. Like you're just running in a straight line. The only reason you would run in that straight line is that you look really, really good. No one gives a shit about the running in a straight line part. No one cares about that you're swimming. Like, it, it's fucking swimming. Who gives a shit? It's not football or anything interesting. Uh, so let's go down the line. I'll let Bobby go first. Bobby, who's taking the lead for you in terms of great bodies? That swimmer came in at the end, and uh, I'm, going, I'm giving it to the swimmer. All right, so you're going swimming over diving. Uh, Robert. Uh, I mean, I can't come up with anything better than my original pick, so I'm very sorry, but I'll just stick with that, the wrestler. Okay. Shannon? Same. I'm also sticking with the wrestler. All right. I think I'm, I think I'm going wrestler as well. I don't think I've got a hot take for anybody uh, because I'd, be, I'd like to be a bottom in this operation, be cuddled, <laughs> so I'm not going to go with, like, one of those, uh, you know, one of those twinks who are shooting off the bow and arrows or, you know, one of the tennis people. Um, actually, Bobby, we didn't look at tennis, but tennis might be your style. Those guys are a little bit tall, but they're not like they're in great shape, but not too muscular. You, they were, you can't see what their bodies look like. I feel like we actually converted you into being like, we got you to admit that you're actually into more muscular cut Probably. people than you realized. Yeah. Cause you told me they drink beers anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, I might've lied about that. You, you might, you might, you might end up trying to date one of these people and then they're in your house just yelling at you every time you open up a beer. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's go through. Uh, let's do some plugs, and then uh, Robert, we're going to continue with you. Celebrate your victory and get some business tips. So let's start with Shannon. Uh, tell everyone where they can find you. What you got going on? Uh, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok. Kind of I'm embarrassed to say that at Shannon Lee six nine eight two. And listen to my podcast. The thing is, ding. We talk about bad dates, fighting, and ghosts. And you can find that wherever you find your podcast or on GasDigitalNetwork.com. Hell yeah. All right, Bobby, do you want to throw out your uh, Twitter or anything for the, the good folks? Um, you can follow me on Twitter, Bobby0918, but it is football season, so don't follow if you don't want football tweets. There you go. Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, Robert, we're going to continue. Shannon and Bobby, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, everyone go check out their stuff. Later, guys. Bye, guys. All right, let's get this out of the screen. Let me go full screen. Now it's just us. It's just the boys. Now we can really talk about the men that, that we like. Yes. I got to set up that other camera angle, but I'm going to do it later. Oh, how's life out in Colorado? 
it's a little warm. Uh, there's a lot of smoke. Uh, there's some fires from California or something. Like all the way from California, we got the smoke going on in our mountainy area. So it's a little bit of a thing because you got to kind of stay inside a little more. But I still went out and did a little hike this morning. Nice. When you were at the dentist today, it looked to me like they actually used the uh, the nitrous oxide. Uh, is that accurate that they did? Yes, that is accurate. I wish upfront a dentist would tell me whether or not they're going to use that because I would go to the dentist more often. I love, I would get a teeth cleaning if I could just sit there and do it. Nitrous is easily my favorite drug. It's really sweet. I've, I've been to the dentist probably 40 times in my life. And, and then only the last three times have I used nitrous because they said I could. Well, and I thought it was super expensive. I thought it was like 500 bucks. It's $37. It's like, I'll pay the $37 to make this, uh, less traumatic experience and it almost makes it fun i highly recommend the nitrous if you haven't done it all you got to do is tell them you're too scared to do it without it and they will every appointment going forward you can use the nitrous so i would pretend to be the world's biggest pussy if it means i can actually take nitrous like i mean it is my it used to be at concerts. I and now this is no longer a thing. By the way, I might as well change the angle so it's not just directly on how big my nose is. Um, it, but I used to at concerts in New York City when you got out of them for jam bands, they would just sell the balloons. Like it was like Balloon City. You pick up like three balloons, walk to your car, uh, and it was a great time. But I, that scene seems to have died down. I don't think they let them just sell the nitrous balloons after shows anymore. I mean, you can still go to head shops and buy it. I don't necessarily recommend. Yeah, I, I want to get started on that. That's like too. <laughs> that's too much. That's bringing it into the house. You know, it's like you want to eat the junk food out of the house. Right. Don't bring it in the house. Um, just do it at the dentist, and it'll make your you'll get better teeth in the process. If I was a dentist, I would just advertise we have nitrous for thirty seven dollars. I was so stunned. I thought it was so much more expensive, and I will never not use it again. Because like once you leave. If you're back to normal, you didn't. You're not like all retarded for the re- the rest of the day. You just, you know, you just have fun. With the dentist. They should advertise 137. dollars You can get your teeth cleaned and do some nitrous, and I'm in. Like I, I will. I would go once a month. Yeah, I'm gonna be going more often. Trust that. Yeah, yeah. dude. It just it, it gives you like that floaty feeling. Everything's amazing, and the best part about it is that there are some drugs that. Um, when you're that fucked up, you start getting like anxious nitrous blocks, whatever that is. So you're only enjoying the pleasurable side of it. Like other drugs, when you get into that super fucked up space, it can start kind of being terrifying. Nitrous is only the enjoyable side of it. Yeah. It totally takes away all the anxiety. It's like having a six pack of beer. My dentist said, and you kind of will say some funny stuff. Once it hits you, you you loosen up and and cut a few jokes. So it's always fun. That's what I need is a nitrous sponsor. Robert, you want to start a um, a nitrous company and I'll advertise it on the Run Your Mouth podcast? Sheath nitrous. Sheath nitrous. Side your company. Mind. Yeah. All right. So um, in all seriousness, one, I, I'd like to uh, – I'm an advocate of good sponsor relationships. And what I mean by that is if you like content like this or you, like you're one of the rare individuals that has like a mainstream company, a clothing company – and you are game for uh, conservative, libertarian, different point of views. You like the offensive stuff. And I don't know if people quite realize how much of the censorship that exists is from companies that don't want to have anything to do with that content. So like a company like 
Comedy Central. They can't like they can't launch some of those shows because then they lose all their advertisers. Uh, so it really does come down to what advertisers are willing to get behind. So in that regard, um, I thank you for supporting this show and everything that you do. And I also think it's important to educate the audience of the fact that some of the censorship exists in what advertisers will support and that there is an importance that when we have the good products and cool people like you that are willing to get behind the programming for them to kind of come back and support. So just off the bat, like, you know, I appreciate you. I'm blessed to be one of the few people that are willing to sponsor you guys. Cause I get all the credit and I love it. I fucking love part of the problem. Run your mouth, gas digital. All of you guys are my type of dudes. Um, and so it's like a perfect match. It's, you know, like what's that dude, the, my pillow guy. And Fox. Oh yeah. You're like the, my pillow guy for gas digital. Exactly. That's now, what I want to be. Did you, uh, do you attribute any of your success in life to the crack you did in your youth? Because the, my pillow guy and, uh, Hunter Biden are really, you know, they're, they're, they're starting to have some real success. Mike Lindell, I think his name. And I, I didn't know he did crack. Well now yeah, I'm, he was a crack guy. <laughs> he, he was a big crack guy. Yeah. Like I, I was a bit of a hustler. I, I, I dabbled in the powders when I was younger. You know what? I guess you're right. It's ambitious because if you're actually doing crack, you're going the full way. You didn't go for, you didn't do Coke or you, you said Coke's not enough. I want to go the absolute extreme. And if you're that personality that you're willing to go there and then you manage to apply that to something else, you're going to be a person who says, Hey, the election's fraudulent and dominion. Like you're, you're that guy. You're the one person who's going to go there. He doesn't care. He gives zero fucks. He'll smoke crack. Well, he's got about a week to prove that the election was fraudulent or he's like uh, every cult leader that's ever existed when it gets to that date. Man, Adam Schiff was saying that they had fucking all this proof on Trump. Like we have evidence of the Russians. Like everybody says all sorts of shit, it seems like these days. And you don't ever have to back it up. So Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. You got me on that one. You know, yeah, political point me here. Um Sorry. No, no, no. I'm, I'm giving you credit. All right. In all seriousness, I've talked uh, sales um, before on the show because uh, I do think that if you don't work sales, you don't realize how important uh, persuasion tactics are. You don't realize uh, really sales, like when you read sales books, they're kind of guide for how to be successful. And so much of it is managing your own attitude, actually like going for it. Um, and so first is I know that you just had a milestone with your business. You guys made it into Forbes. So I'd love to hear first, if you could tell us what the milestone was, and then if maybe you could uh, share some insight with the fans on how maybe they can be more successful in their own endeavors. I will do that. Uh, One of the coolest things that happened recently was that we made the Inc. 5,000 fastest growing companies in America. And that was kind of a surprise. We somebody had sent me an email saying, "Congratulations for making this list. Can we sell you something now?" And I was like, "What do you mean we made? You know, people now people want to sell us stuff because we made the list and they think we're you know we and we are successful, but they, now they want to offer some services and whatnot." But I was like, "We made the list." So I went and found that yet yeah, like Forbes had actually sent us the email and. So we did make the list. So that was pretty cool. That's when I sent you that text. And that just means that as a younger company, we meet their requirements. I'm not sure where we stood on the, it's 5,000 companies. So I need to, I want to see the list. Well, the other way to look at it is like 80% of new companies fail. 
who knows how many companies are even uh, like on the internet, how many people are going like, Oh yeah, I can do a t-shirt company and I, I, I can string together some Instagram ads. Like that's every single 25 year old for It's like the open mic of starting a business is people just going, Oh yeah, I can do that. I, I can sure. do an, I can string together some Instagram ads. I, uh, and then there's the people that actually show up, they do it and they build it. So I, it, it, I mean, Forbes to me, I'm still a sucker for mainstream media. Like I read the wall street journal every day. Like, so those accolades are, uh, you know, I'm still a sucker for them. It made, it meant something to me. I, I love being recognized for what I've been working on for the past decade and never gave up. And that's one of the tenets of success is never quitting. Once you quit, it's over. I have sheath tattooed on my back in like 15 by eight inch letters that will signify that if I quit, you know, you're going to look like an idiot with this tattoo <laughs> on your back. That's commitment, dude. I love that. And, yeah. And pe- people don't know that when I take off my shirt, sometimes people are like, they say that that's fucking, you're all in and all this. And you, you have to be all in. You want to be successful and you want to go half ass. Good luck. Not going to happen. There's people out there willing to work harder than you. And so if you're not willing to go the extra mile, another tenet of success, then you're not going to be successful or you might get lucky, but you know, it might, it probably won't last because the, in order to last in business, you have to be a good person. You can't be fucking people over. You, you give them more than they ask for. You always be positive. You know, once you start being like, if I was ever to say some negative shit to you about something like how, how is that going to help if, Bisping didn't put out the podcast this month. And I'm like, what the fuck asshole? You know, and I didn't feel like that at all, but you know, like people get cocky and arrogant and it's like, stay humble. I'm a servant leader of to, to my, my employees, to my customers, to the people I work with. I want to make your life better. And, and you do the same thing. I know by working with you that you give and, and it's like a, give and take it's a we help each other the the good attitude thing is so important and uh i i don't do a good enough job of that at the moment because i like i've worked in other places where that's part of the professionalism honestly is like you just got to leave your bullshit at home like sometimes like you have like a good friend and like you can talk in the corner of the room you know what i mean about whatever the hell is bothering you in your life uh but when everyone's showing up to the office and like it's kind of like going to the gym. When I go to the gym, and this is honest, like I go to the gym and I work out because I'm anxious as all hell. I don't want to be in the gym, right? Which dog is that? But once I get started, I get lost in the activity of being in the gym. And usually it takes 10 minutes of whatever I'm doing, which is not enjoyable and it becomes enjoyable. Uh, even though work is not as enjoyable ever as being you know, uh, at the gym, if you just showed up to the gym and you're like, fuck, I hate this person. You spend an hour talking about everything you don't like in your life, you're never going to start working out kind of thing. You know what I mean? So I feel like that's a big one is, uh, you gotta like, you gotta keep your bullshit at home. You gotta show up, be professional to work. And, I uh, I can tell you, cause I'm not, this is not one of my strongest character traits or, well, it's good for podcasting to be angry at everything and yell about why you're angry at everything. It's not as good for, uh, for life or for business settings. And I know that the people I like being around and working with are the ones that doesn't matter what's going wrong. They're kind of cool, calm and collected. Yeah. The people that lose it, it's fun on podcast, you know, when Tim Dillon goes off or, you know, whatever, whoever 
you, yeah, you kind of go off sometimes. I like when you go off. It's fun. Uh, but in a work environment, you got to make sure you don't burn bridges and, and, and say, cause emotions get involved. Shit's going to get fucked up. No, like always, like that's what we do. It's just fix problems pretty much. And then, you know, this just having a power, it's a power of positive thinking. It's a real thing. And that's just the beginning, you know, cause then you got to work and you got to overcome obstacles and work together. And, um, let's see. So let's talk about, uh, well, uh, let's talk about the early days because I think the beginning of a new business, I almost think people sometimes when they show up, like, and they look at the owners and, you know, sometimes they're like, I'm not getting a big enough piece of the pie. I don't know if people quite realize the hell of facing the unknown when you really go out on your own and you go, Hey, I'm going to build this thing from scratch. And at first when it's not clicking, um, I know cause there's a business I'm involved with that we, you know, I started literally me personally was in my apartment and there's a particular hell of when you can't afford employees. So it's just you, you're dealing with every possible task. You're dealing with every no, there's no one to bounce ideas off of. It's a, uh, it's a particularly difficult thing and it takes a, which honestly I did not always have the strongest mind and fortitude, but it really does take a, a commitment and strong mind. So can you tell us a little bit about the early days, the pure hell of it and how you kind of just push through? Well, that's why I got the tattoo on my back. Cause it was like a six. Oh, you six, did that right at the outset. Well, it was 2012, 2011, 12. So, um, it was right at the outset. I just, it had, but, it, but I had the idea in 2008. So I had the, and I was in, the, I was in Iraq. I was in the middle of a, uh, service. So you can't just get out of the army. But, but uh, so I had the idea there and um, I went and had the prototypes made like when I was in Iraq. So when you have an idea, you want to act fast. Don't wait, don't hesitate. The universe likes speed act. I went and had the prototypes made the right then and there. And I was wearing them myself in Iraq before I left. And then that was easy enough. I told some people, they were like, Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. My balls stick to my leg too. Okay. That's interesting. But, um, I felt it a little bit more strongly about it. Something was really, uh, just drawing me to continue doing that. So when I got home from my tour, I went and bought a sewing machine and I started sewing. I sewed, I fixed all my the underwear in my drawer and sewed like a little pouch, not a little pouch, an amply sized pouch inside of the, the underwear. Pouch. It's such a big pouch. The original model, no one else could use it. The pouch was too big. It was too big. <laughs> and, uh, and so, and then I was showing my friends doing all that thing. And I, my brother actually got involved and, and was really pushing me too to, to, to take it from just sewing to turn it into a business. So he came up with a name. It was pretty cool. Sheath. I was like, sheath, that sounds really cool. We were going to say junk drawers because you put your junk in drawers. We were going to say Southern Comfort because Southern Comfort downstairs. But those were a little bit cheesy. I'm really happy with sheath. When he said the name sheath, that really stuck. And but you were like obstacles. So what was the obstacle? I spent my last $5,000 on this production of a thousand pairs of sheath from a company in Pakistan that I'd never been to. And just, I was taking the word of this guy who was really cool and actually did help me. 
and walked my uh, held my hand as through the process. But then uh, they had this monsoon, and I couldn't get in touch with them for like three months. And I was like, "What's happening?" I thought it was all over. He ends up coming through. I get the product, but it wasn't sellable. So I just spent my last thousand five thousand dollars on a product that was unsellable. Jeez. Yeah. Wait. So you you put your last five k in. And then you ended up with no product. I had product, but I had to, I couldn't sell it. And I, I was giving it away to my friends and they were like, Oh, that's nice. But they were they it, Ultimately I found out like the pouch was too high when they put it on, it was like cutting off circulation or whatever. So it took a while. And you think I would know that by putting it on, but I was in denial and I was like, it's good enough. And you mean you were just walking around with like your balls turning blue literally just being strangled and you were just like, no, no, this is the greatest thing ever. People are going to love this. Uh, something like that. It was, I must have tough balls or something also, but ultimately I figured that out and uh, I got out of the army, but so now what am I doing? So I went, I, uh, I went to school because they pay you to go to school when you get out of the army. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to school. They're going to pay me and I'm going to go work for a tailor and fix these thousand pairs so I'm getting my bachelor's degree and then I ultimately got my master's degree. But, and, and during that time I was working for free at a tailor. I said, if you teach me how to sew, I'm going to run your front counter and we're going to work together blah, blah, like that whole deal. So I, I mean, while I'm going to school and living with my fucking mom, I had moved back in with my mom because I got a divorce and that was the whole thing. How old were you? 33, you know, so that's, it's a tough, not- that's a tough age for being like, I mean, I, I feel like a lot of dudes go through that period of divorce back in moms for a bit. Um, and I guess at any age, that's not that's not the funnest. I'm, I'm sure it wasn't the funnest stretch of life. It, You know, I was just staying busy, man. I, I pretty much I did stay positive. She was pretty cool about it. I didn't have much of a choice. And do you, do you enjoy sewing? Is that something like if you get started on, you can like really get in the zone? You can. I don't do it anymore, but when I was working at the tailor, it would I get like super high and go in there and sew, and it would be the coolest thing. And I because I had to sew a thousand a thousand pairs, and when you get in the it's like it's very meditative. It really. And then also, it's uh, I I mean, from the couple, like I I never did like real construction jobs, but I had a job right to like show up to office sites, like put together the furniture for them. Uh, there definitely is something really nice about working with your hands and going like done, like finished item. They're like, there's no question about that. A hundred percent. And I've been, you know, I've recently been taking a ceramics class and that it holds true to this day. I, I, when you're on that spinning wheel, it's pretty fun. I recommend that. But I'll get back to the working for the tailor. Uh, we're doing that. I, I, we create a new prototype. We're excited. This is a this is three years later. What's the new like, prototype? It's a it's a sheath, but without cutting off the circulation to your balls, right? It's like some a more ergonomically correct pouch that fits comfortably. And but I had I didn't have any money per se. You know, I had like I was getting fifteen hundred bucks a month, so it really wasn't enough to make advancements. And so I. We did a Kickstarter, you know, for, you know, and this is the, the a testament to magic, if you will. Like sometimes I like to throw a little woo into what happened with us. And they say the universe will re- rearrange itself to 
bend to the will of a man who will not give up. And I wouldn't quit, you know, and, and all of a sudden this fucking crowdsourcing website exists that if it, you know, 10 years earlier, I couldn't have done it, whatever, three years earlier, it wasn't ready, but now it's ready. And we make this video. It's so corny. If you guys Google sheath Kickstarter, the first one, and I looked so dorky. I, I think I still didn't have a beard and I was skinny and nervous and talking. I was like, oh, I made this underwear. It's kind of good. I hope you like it. And it, it passed, you know, people it, came through for you. Yeah, it was successful. And that was, you know, it's like, Oh, great. You know, you're going to be successful. And we were for about six months because we, we got the underwear, we gave all the people, we're selling more, we're selling out, we order more. And the company sends us another, like kind of a scenario from the first batch, except that was my fault the first time this time. And the reason it was my fault the first time is because I rushed it. Don't rush. Just don't rush too like, don't wait too long, but don't rush. There's like a middle ground. You got to get it done, but give it like one or two more iterations, but not a thousand more iterations. Anyways, this time we, we're ordering the second batch because we want to. We have people that want it, and I get it. And it's just they're all mangled. Like I don't even know why they sent it because I couldn't sell it. I guess you you know on the outside it looked like normal underwear, but when I opened it in the pouch, the pouch was like. These Shinesty, I don't know if you guys have heard of this other brand called Shinesty. They're like, they're funny. They do they do a ball pouch and they're they're funny. They're fuck like, Shinesty. Why are we I, plugging oh, these people? Well, their pouch is like this big. It's like yeah, well, tiny- they'll squeeze your nuts. Well, you yeah. won't be able to come again for the rest of your life. You know how much sperm that shit kills. Yeah, don't. Well, I just I was just I try to stay positive, but I was trying to be funny. But they, uh, that's what we ended up with, and it was shit, and we couldn't sell it. And so like, you're like, what the fuck now? What do you do? Uh, because I just sent, sent China all that money. I just sold myself out. <laughs> it, well, and they fucked me. They fucked me. Um, and so I'm stuck with this. Did you tell me you're a Marine and I'll come to your fucking country. Let's do this shit. I was on the verge, but they gave me, it's funny. They gave me 35% of my money back. I'm like, okay. That's so random. That's yeah. like a random number. It was weird, but I got some of it back and it was enough to have hope, we'll say. And what do you do in this scenario? And because now I don't have a manufacturer, I don't have any like enough money to buy it if I did. And I got a bunch of people that want the product. So what the fuck though? And so I something I just I was I never faltered though, you know, it was like we're still we gotta figure it out. What are we gonna do? And as luck would have it, one more time, uh, a company reached out to me. I guess they, you know, they saw we were doing business on Instagram or whatever, and they asked if they could make uh, do our production for us. And usually, we have people doing our production for us because we still get hit up all the time. But in this case, I was like, yeah, sure. And I sent them the prototype, but one of the good ones, and they made it better, and they sent it back to me. And it was like the most warm rush of refreshing water. And like when I put it on, I was like, oh, this is fucking perfect. I love this. Um, And I knew, again, like it's still on. We just got to figure it out. And the only other option that I had at the time was to do another Kickstarter. And so 
And, and I'll tell this funny story because we have an audience of people who probably would appreciate Joe Rogan. And I'll tell a Joe Rogan story that kind of ties into all of this. And I don't know if I've told you this, Robbie. Have I told? Anyways. I don't think so. I'm going to tell you right now. So it was the summer. Uh, uh, summer? No. Winter. 2012, 13. I guess it was 2013. And maybe it was 2012. But that would fuck up my timeline a little bit. But anyways, what happened was I went to go see Rogan in Austin. I went to go see his, uh, you know, his comedy show. It was Brian Redman, Duncan Trussell, and Joe Rogan, and the whole crew, the whole crew. And at the last, like this, you're a comedian, so you'll you'll probably hate me for this. But after he did his set, he did an hour. I'm timing it. He's doing, uh, it's like, now he's doing crowd work. He's just fucking with people. Hey, what are you doing? Da, 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 da. I'm like, this is my time. And I brought some sheath. I took him out and I threw him on the stage. And uh, he, and he was kind of cool about it. He goes, oh, what, what's this? What's this? Uh, Austin is weird shirt because we're in Austin. And, and he picks it up. He goes, sheath, sheath, the fuck? What do you mean a pouch for your balls? What are you trying to smuggle drugs? What are you, some kind of degenerate? This is the stupidest idea I've ever heard of or a billion dollar idea. And I was like, thank you. And I threw a few more pairs and probably he still hates me to this day, but cause you don't do that to a comedian I hear and I knew better, but whatever I did it, you know, like interrupt. He, well, I, I it, interrupt it, the set, though. it sounds to me like I uh, put it this way. If the entire crowd is doing that, you can't have a show. I, if you're doing crowd work and one person does something weird, I mean, you're kind of don't heckle. Like I, I'm telling you, don't show up to shows and be this person. Like, you know what I mean? People who think they're helping the show by heckling, they're not. Uh, however, if you're in the space, like where you're doing crowd work, it depends. Like sometimes I'm like, I got to I, I, I pull a bit of a trick where I pretend like I'm more lost in my act than I am. And like, like, I'll pretend like I don't remember what I was talking about. Cause I do have ADD and sometimes like it will slip my mind. And like, I don't remember what I was talking about. And like, I'll, I'll like, I'll look to the crowd be like, what the fuck was I talking about? And then people will tell me like, sometimes I legitimately don't remember and I need that. And other times, other times, like I'm kind of playing it up anyways. I purposely sometimes, especially in hostile rooms, I'll like kind of create chaos. And then like, I'll, I'll get really aggressive to like slam it down. But like, I kind of, I kind of know what I'm doing. It's kind of controlled chaos. But if you're in the audience, you don't realize that like I have a handle on it type of thing. So anyways, what you did, I wasn't there. It might've been highly inappropriate or it might've been perfect flow for the fact that he was goofing with the crowd and he was kind of like looking for stuff to bounce off of. Yeah, I wasn't, I don't think it was highly inappropriate, but it was, it was on the line. We'll Whatever. See. So you got the plug and then what? Everyone, everyone went online and bought it? No, I went, I was driving home. And I was at a red light and I got rear-ended by a taxi cab and, and nobody in the car was hurt. It was fucking awesome. We had weed and we like pulled over and got rid of the weed real quick and the cops came and it was a whole thing, but I got $5,000 from that cab cab. And, and there was like no damage to my forerunner. It like hit the, where the jack or whatever goes in. And, and so it didn't do any damage. It was like, I got, I got 5,000 bucks. So how it all ties in is that 5,000, I send to our manufacturer, this new manufacturer, but it, that was all I had. I had to come up with the other. What, that's thir- really all in. 13,000. God bless. I mean, that's really all in on your dream. 
<laughs> I'm just telling you, I've been doing I've been doing comedy 11 years, and like every once in a while, I'm filming a sketch that I believe in, and like I try and figure out how to film it for nothing type thing. I mean, even right now, I've been doing my podcast a long time, and uh, I I mean, I actually have a pretty cool setup right now, but it's not like I've spent you know 20 grand to have a pro studio or to have a producer here. So I just want to say, uh, I mean, that that's remarkable to be that level of all in. It was all, it was back to the wall. You've heard the story of like where the conquistador sails to like some island, and he has his men burn the ships. He's like, "We will not leave this island unless we win," and they won because they had no choice; they could not retreat. And I and I was anyways. So I did send it to them. We did another Kickstarter. You know that very next year, so 2013 to 2014. That next summer. We did a Kickstarter and, and uh, it was successful again. We got the balance owed, and I and I had already started production because I sent that money, and so uh, sixty days later we get the balance. I send it to them. They send me the the product, and and during Kickstarters are fucking stressful. If it's like because oh, it's all or nothing, right? Like yeah. unless you hit that yes. number and it gets funded, you're not getting anything. Yeah. So I had a couple of strategies. I'm like, all right, I'm going to sell my car if I have to or whatever, but waiting, it's like, fuck dude. And they, and the way the algorithms work and I know we're on time, I don't know what it is, but like, you'll get this boost at the beginning. And then for like the, the medium time, you're like nothing. And at the end you get another boost and you end up getting it. It was so stressful, <laughs> but every time I would freak out, laying in bed asleep or awake at night, I would go to the closet and I would grab that pair and I would put them on and that refreshing wave would, I was like, yeah, we got this. Just, just hang with it. And, uh, and then, I mean, that, that speaks to the uh, cooling and comfortable power of the sheath underwear that when you were all in, once your balls got into that sack, you were like, this is going to be a win. Robert, um, we will have to do this again. I really wanted to speak manifesting with you because I think it's such an interesting theory about success and I'm a little bit more rational, but I love hearing things that are outside of uh, my immediate perception of reality. Uh, and as you've lived and improved it for you, it's a working system. So I'm going to plug for everyone. Firstly, I'm a firm believer in the sheath underwear. I wear it. I love it. I did two podcasts with Robert. It's RPG Global. Uh, and he definitely, we, we had fun business talks. I mean, we went in on all sorts of stuff. I was on Adderall, so I pretended like I was a real CEO. It was a good time. Uh, I do want to talk manifesting, but I made the mistake. I'm learning here how to go live like this. I lined up back-to-back guests, and I'm, I'm holding the other guy. Okay. Um, so we're, we're going to have to do it again because I we'll do want to talk. Where, yeah, we'll pick up where we left off on the, on the 2014 Kickstarter. That was a success, and it's it come a long way since there. I get to talk with Robbie the Fire Bernstein on uh, Run Your Mouth podcast. I love it. I love you. I love Gas Digital and all of you out there listening. Thank you so much. So next, uh, hopefully, hopefully even next week, if you're if you're available Thursday night, we're going to get the ha- second half of the sheath tail, and then you're going to break down for us the power of manifesting. The power of manifesting will happen next Thursday. We'll be there, baby. All right, and before I get into my last segment here, a segment that's going to make you money. Uh, you, we got some new stock tips. We're not allowed to say that. We're not allowed to plug tips. We're not allowed to plug that anything's going to make you money, but you know, it's going to make your balls feel really great. If you buy yourself some sheath underwear, you just heard from Robert himself. You heard the story. You heard about how he got his business off the ground. 
And if you're not yet a believer after hearing from Robert what it took to make this thing, get it made, well, then maybe you got to actually try this under for yourself. Or go to sheath.com, use promo code RYM, you're going to get 20% off. All right, so um, let's really – let's uh, – Take 10 minutes. We're going to rapid fire a couple of the big topics. And as always, uh, I mean, first, you've made me a fair amount of money because I, I invested in everything you told me, plus other random ones. So I appreciate you greatly. Chainlink. Oh, you're welcome. Sh- shout out Chainlink Army. Shout out. Uh, I forget the other good one that you told me about. Um, I don't know. Ethereum. Own some Ethereum. What are, what are the other ones that you really love still? Yeah, I Synthetics, Ave, uh, Bancor which is a decentralized exchange, uh, which is ironically named after the international money that uh, Keynes recommended in like the 30s, I think. Um, but I'm also, this is a, one I didn't tell you about before. And you can you only get it on- Son of a bitch. Yeah, but you can only get it on Uniswap. Holding uh, out on the good ones. I know. Well, I've become more bullish on it recently, but it's, uh, it's called Etherisk Dip, and that's decentralized insurance protocol. Uh, it's basically a decentralized insurance market where- you can build a policy for any type of insurance you can imagine from healthcare to flight insurance, uh, to also crop insurance, which is what they're working on right now. What's the, uh, what's the name of that again? Uh, etherisk dip. Like, well, you, uh, e- email it to me. Rob, yeah, gmail.com. Cause I've, uh, I take your tips. I mean, I haven't thrown in my life savings. I didn't go Robert from sheath on it, but I mean, I've been investing. Yeah. I mean, I threw in my life savings a few years ago and I'm, I'm quite pleased that I did. Hell Although yeah. right now might not be the best time to go balls out. Uh, What's the other one that uh, it starts with? It's not Monero, but it also starts with, uh, and it's kind of like a chain link. That's the other one I own. That's like in the oh, DeFi category. Maker Dow? No, no, no. It's uh, uh, yeah, whatever. I'm not going to remember. Um, all right. So, including the infrastructure bill was this total nonsense thing that would, uh, you know, advanced the regulation on crypto why don't you explain to people exactly what they snuck in there and why this is so threatening yeah so what they snuck in at the last minute and it's a little you know there's a little confusion as to who did it we think it might have been elizabeth warren uh but they in the bill to pay for it they expanded the definition of what a broker is in crypto to include hardware wallet manufacturers miners that validate the blocks and also node validators for proof of stake chains and all these other people in the infrastructure who quite literally cannot collect the tax information from the clients using the products due to the semi-anonymous nature of blockchain technology. And they wanted them to basically collect every bit of tax information for these clients who are using the networks, even though it's impossible to. And it was, you know, obviously this was met with some heavy backlash from the community. And fortunately, uh, Senator Cynthia Lummis, who Dave is right about that lady's awesome, uh, came together with a few other senators, uh, Toomey and Wyden. They came up with an amendment that only applied to the centralized exchanges such as Coinbase or Binance US that have to record, which they're the only ones who could in the ecosystem actually record who is you know, doing taxable transactions. Uh, and that looked like it was going to go through. And then unfortunately, there was a counter uh, amendment from Senator Portman, Cinema, and Warner, uh, and it got the White House backing. And basically, it excluded some things, like it, it took out minors from the brokerage definition. However, it still went after proof-of-stake networks. 
like it, which so Ethereum is, is going to be soon. Is it a compliance standard that basically no one can comply to? So it's like a backdoor way of making everything illegal or exactly. it, okay. Exactly. Yeah. And it, not necessarily the technology itself illegal, but for these organizations to operate in the United States, like to be headquartered here, uh, it, it would basically kill all development of the industry in the USA. But does that uh, kill me as a consumer, my ability to get onto these platforms like that they won't exist or just kills their ability to be headquartered here? Uh, a little bit of both. You, They could potentially put pressure on US-based exchanges like Coinbase or Gemini and hypothetically they could delist assets. Uh, we don't think it would come to that, but it would it would mostly just be the companies that they would be going after. Um, it it really you know some people were talking about how this is actually bullish for the space because it shows like oh we're getting recognized by the government, but you know I I always get a little worried when you know Uncle Sam comes creeping around. Well, part of the worry needs to be is that I. Uh, if you're playing Bitcoin long term, part of the let's just say the the strategy here, if we're looking at a chessboard, we understand that we're going up against government. But can we get a critical mass of users, particularly, uh, let's just say the protected players like institutional banks and pension funds and the people that have enough kind of connection or are large enough that the government doesn't want to fuck them over that, for one, it cr- increases demand for these assets uh, and so they become more valuable, but then also we're less at risk of government shutting it down, right? And so if you step in with legislation that firstly uh, continues to build the narrative that you know crypto is not of value for humanity, that you know it's burning too much electricity, it's too electricity, I mean, it's too, uh, too volatile, too risky, people are going to lose their shirts off their back, blah, 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 blah. Uh, at the end of the day, part of what we need to survive is for the institutional players to come in, you know, and for to hit that critical mass. So anything that would scare people off or potentially, you know, burst burst our little increase here as the bull run goes on is not fun. It's not good. Right. But, uh, you know, fortunately, crypto is international. So a lot of these, you know, top finance firms, uh, a lot of them are based overseas. They're still going full blast ahead with crypto adoption. Uh, to some extent, uh, it is you know concerning because you know most of the financial like top financial industry like firms are in the United States, so that would cause issues. However, there is some good news in all of this: is that some top you know people that are normally you know corporatists like Elon Musk or Jack Dorsey, they came out very strongly against the whole you know infrastructure plan that they uh, were trying to push. So there already are a lot of people uh, that are in bed with the deep state that are fortunately going against this because they they're also heavily invested already in crypto and bitcoin and ethereum and what's going to probably happen is even though unfortunately you know through a whole like you you paid attention i think the uh the bill still went through uh, unaltered and so the original language still exists there's a good chance that in the house of representatives they're going to fix this because there is a lot of pressure coming from the top and a lot of these guys who are connected to them. So let's give credit to uh, Ted Cruz. And now just uh, first call him the status that he is. Every senator, what they do is they're trying to protect, you know, they want to get reelected. And so they try and protect the interests of their states. God bless. I mean, in part, that's why they're there is to protect the interests of the people 
uh, in that state, you know, so in some ways, like they're doing a good job. So I guess Texas has had a bit of a crypto boom. And so he's somewhat aware of the fact that he now has uh, quite a few taxpayers or people that are bringing money into the state. And so he actually gave a very incredible speech where he said, firstly, he actually didn't point out that it has nothing to do with infrastructure. But he's like, you guys have shoved this in here. And if we were to put if we were to ask five of you to explain what crypto was, you wouldn't be able to do it. So why are we voting on something that we don't understand was like his first thing. It doesn't make sense why we would vote on this. And two, you've got a lot of Americans now, your average like person working in the crypto space, or I think he said minor developer, whatever it is, is making between like eighty six and $110,000 a year. Why are we going to get rid of good American taxpaying jobs when none of us even understand what we're voting on? So let's, let, like, let's at least remove this so that we can learn about it and come to a better decision. Uh, and I don't know if you guys watch that speech. The second half of it, he starts talking about fucking we got to, you know, uh, expand the military and all sorts of dumb shit. But when he called out the entire room for being like, none of you even know what this is and you're going to get rid of good American jobs. It was a pretty great moment. Oh, yeah, that was you know really, really great. And, you know, he kind of Ted Cruz kind of has that Southern Baptist, you know, preacher uh, sort of energy to him and he can do a really great job evangelizing and he did a great job evangelizing crypto there you know just like as, as good as a behind uh you know senator lummis i think as good as a like senator could uh and it was it was refreshing to hear him get up there it was actually really funny one of my friends uh in texas is apparently followed by him and so he dm'd the senator account and uh, that was before he came out in favor of it. So maybe my friend's DM ha- had some impact on that. But yeah, it's it's it was kind of refreshing. It was nice. And it's I'm I'm kind of hesitant to say this, but I feel like if we can sort of push in, you know, there was actually some Democrats that were coming out against the whole BS in the bill and were actually pro crypto. But it, it seems to be that like we're sort of seeing it being divided now along party lines. It seems that Republicans are more open to crypto and Democrats are more against it. Um, well, what, what makes sense about that to me is that uh, Democrats, typically speaking, I actually think they're more in, uh, more on team wall street. And like, they are almost some of like the really deep seated ones seem to be more, I mean, a little bit more maybe deep stadium, like military wing these days, but like they're definitely more, I think seeing more of like the corporate and wall street money. Uh, and what I venture to guess, and they also kind of understand the way that we need to keep our currency so that they continue to print and inflate and all that stuff. But we don't have to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, I, I think I talked about it on an earlier podcast that there was an entire platform already being built uh, like in the crypt, like basically off of blockchain in which all of like the repo market is kind of being transacted between uh, JP Morgan and the fed. Uh, and if you remember a couple of years ago, they shut down Facebook's Libra, which was essentially like, I think that was the name of it. It was a crypto that they were trying. Yeah, they've rebranded that to DM now. It's like, like oh, it's like a new, what is it? It's a new crypto that they have? Yeah, well, yeah, it's, it hasn't launched officially, but they've, re- it, it, it still exists. It's just under a different name now. It's D-I-D-M. Is it, is it just, DM. is it just um, Facebook's or is it like now in conjunction with like, Visa or some other, you know, payment processor. I think most of the original partners have backed out of the deal. Uh, I'm not entirely sure who is still partnered with them. It hasn't really been, it hasn't really been on much on anybody's radar because I think what's really the most exciting things in the crypto space are, you know, the truly decentralized applications and 
that seems to be what's gaining popular support. And also NFTs, uh, are, that's kind of grabbed the mainstream's attention to some extent. All right. So just to speak to uh, um, what I was saying a second ago, I, I, I venture to guess that the Democrats have a somewhat better understanding or are like less freedom oriented, especially as they're trying to like kind of fund their ESG thing. Like they're really trying to centralize control around money in the Fed as much as possible. So I think they're a little bit more aware of the threat of Bitcoin. And it's something that they uh, like even like they, they almost don't want free enterprise more than the conservatives uh, don't want it. Uh, and I venture to guess that some of the institutional players as stable coins and the Fed probably launches its own coin. Uh, I, I like I actually think Elizabeth Warren kind of really understands the financial stuff. And she's also I think what you don't realize with these people is that um, they're lawyers and like they're like they're kind of like sh- when I say shitty salespeople, I don't mean like they're not good at sales. I mean, I think they really don't have any ethics past. I represent my client and whatever I have to do for my client to win. That's kind of what I do. It's like the, the law exists and my job is to do whatever I can for the person who's paying me. And that's what I'm supposed to do. Uh, and I like Elizabeth Warren's background. And I'm, I'm talking about my pay rate. I mean, she was in bankruptcy law. She like defended some pretty big people. Uh, so I, I don't know who's quite paying Elizabeth Warren's bill, uh, but I'm sure the people that are coming down and cracking down on crypto, it's either that they have a really good understanding of how it can disrupt what the Fed is doing and the abilities, uh, the government's ability to fund itself, or they're in line with like a JP Morgan or somebody else that has the in on like a stable coin type thing. Uh, and so, you know, they're trying to protect some sort of corporate interest. Right. Right. I think, yeah, you definitely bring up a good point with them being lawyers and having a lot of experience in the industry. And there is definitely a correlation between those that were, uh, you know, in favor of the wider, uh, the, the, the more wide definition in the bill that would have really screwed the industry. And they all, you know, like Elizabeth Warren, she gets a massive amount from the banking industry. And then the guy who ultimately killed it, uh, Senator uh, Shelby from Alabama, he claims that it was due to the fact that his amendment to get military spending was denied is why he denied it. But he's also gets like millions from the banking and financial sector. So yeah, like you're saying, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of this is, you know, existing institutions who see the threat of crypto taking them out as, you know, the financial middlemen for a lot of these transactions. And yeah, they're scared. So it seems All to right. be that, yeah. So, sorry. Last question. And yeah. I, I apologize. I don't want to turn Fox News on you. I just did this to Robert from Sheath as well. <laughs> who I, I, I'm very excited to have back on to get the second half of the story, but I'm learning that uh, if I line up a bunch of guests for segments within time blocks, I have to figure out how to somehow have a more flexible schedule so that we can go long. I, I don't quite, I don't quite have it figured out as to how to, you know, keep these conversations short. But uh, if you can give me a quick answer, we're on an incredible rally right now. I think you and I might have even had the conversation with crypto when as high as like fifty whatever and saying now is not the time to buy in, but we're believers. I think you might have even said you think it's going to dip again and then we're going to have the big time rally. So just quick answer, two part question. One, what has gone on over the last month that we're on this incredible rally? Cause it's been a great rally and it's not just Bitcoin. It's like across the board, everything I own, I'm in the green on right now. So I'm a happy camper. Uh, so what's, what is fueling this incredible rally? 
And is this the rally of rallies that like the last one was the last dip? And, you know, now is when we kind of Bitcoin climbs to a hundred. Uh, and when I say that, I mean, a hundred thousand, like what, 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 give us, give us your, uh, you're, you're the day trader here. So give us the bull story. What's going on right now and how high is this going to go? Well, I think what happened was we got overheated very quickly. Uh, we were way over moving averages and we were outpacing the last bull run in terms of where we were at, uh, in time within that bull, the bull run timeframe, according to previous bull cycles, uh, we came down to support. And I think what happened was there was a lot of coordinated, uh, FUD, you know, fear, unrest, disruption that was promoted by the media. And it, I've seen a lot of speculation that it was just to sort of get institutions that low price to buy, which seems to be what's happened. And yeah, there was just, there was a a very coordinated campaign to bring it all down. And it seems now that in the institutions that, you know, at least are pro crypto are stepping in and, you know, I think it was kind of this, you know, we've, if you zoom out, it's this bear trap where we came down to support, everybody got really bearish and was like, Oh, it's over. You know, we're going to, it's going to be a few years before we come back. And, and we bounced really hard. And I think that there's definitely a chance we could correct a little bit down, like, you know, come back and retest some of those, uh, previous supports down at like the 40,000 level and around there. But I think overall over the next few months, maybe over the next six months, I think we're going to keep going pretty much, you know, in that up only mode, hopefully, you know, it, it can always change, but I think the fact that this whole infrastructure bill, like, even though it's, it's been a complete shit show, the fact the market didn't it's gonna scare people. I mean, it's going to scare people. People have to be afraid of inflation and uh, the more yep. people get educated about how inflation erodes their wealth, the more attractive uh, Bitcoin becomes. And I do think Bitcoin is going to be uh, a little bit more attractive than gold. Uh, and the stupidity of the markets is that the more things climb, the more there's fear of missing out and the more you know people hop in late. Hey, man, always a fucking pleasure. We're going to have to do it again. And soon, uh, I, I mean, like I said, you've put money into my pocket. So uh, I appreciate you that for that. And also, it's always a fun conversation. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me back, Rob. Yeah, where uh, where can the good folks find you? Yeah, I'm at Pavel Chadzuk on Twitter. That's P-A-V-E-L. Why'd you, trade it? Why'd you change it? It used to just be at Pavel Trades. Yeah, uh, because mostly I just shit post. That's all that's right. I get it. Fair yeah. enough. Ship post away. All right, dude. I hope to be back in uh, Texas soon. I know you missed Childerberg uh, last time, but uh, I'm hoping to get back down there. So, you know, we'll actually have to actually hang out in person. Yeah. I'll be seeing you at Skankfest South. Oh, you're going to be there? Yep. I got my ticket. Fuck yeah, dude. I mean, I'm going to be there all three days. I'm going to be partying. Robert from Sheath's going to be there. Uh, I'm, uh, dude, we'll, we'll party. It's going to be a yeah. great time. We'll do all the drugs. I mean, you bring them, I'll do them. That's a good policy. I'm going to actually have that shirt on. Hell yeah. All right. See you, Rob. All right. Always a pleasure.